what's it about you that you you know you you found uh, all of these different adventures interesting and you jumped into them to me it just should always be about adventure you know mm-hmm. yes yes you want to push your body harder than you can um, and just see how far it can take you so i think you know i like to think that i've still got a sense of adventure and i'd like to think that i'm still going to try and push the envelope and find things that are different that interest me that interest me you know Welcome back to the show you guys. Today you're about to meet an amazing person. You're about to meet one of my favorite guests on the podcast ever. You're about to meet Susan Hunt. Susan is an Australian living in Delhi for the last 15 years. She took to endurance sports many years ago and finished the Ironman triathlon in 1991 in all of 12 and a half hours, which is pretty good. She's also a long distance runner. She's finished multiple ultra marathons including the famous MDS Uh, and also the RTR the run the run that happens in the dhol well used to happen in the dholavira region she has also done some serious adventure racing some uh, open water swims and a lot of skiing and a lot of climbing and she's been to the top of the everest the stories are amazing susan is now 66 and she's fitter than most people half her age and she has a ton of exciting things lined up I loved meeting her and recording this episode. She's bold, she's fun, she's super nice and I can't wait for you to listen to this beautiful, enriching, inspiring conversation. So without further ado, let's dive right in. This is Susan Hunt and me in the Find Your Ultra podcast, episode 38. Indulge away. Susan, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. What a pleasure to have you here. Thank you. At the beginning of this episode, I can tell you that uh, this is going to be one of my favorite episodes. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. That's very sweet. You don't know yet. <laughs> no, how do I know that? Because uh, vastness of of experience that you have. I love people like you, people who've done crazy stuff and uh, continue to do that. Yeah. So I'm looking forward to this conversation. Thank you. It's very sweet. Let's get to know you a little bit. You're an Australian living in Delhi for the last 15 years. Correct. And you've been in endurance sports uh, for a while. You've been a climber. You've done open water swimming and various other things. Before we get into all of those, let's uh, get to know you a little bit. Like, where were you born? Where were you raised? What was your childhood upbringing like? Uh, please tell us. So, born in New South Wales in Australia. Um, my father was in the air force, so I had a typical air force brat upbringing, moving around from place to place. Mm-hmm. Um, Mountains didn't ever feature in my growing up. It was always beaches, uh, beaches and fishing, and um, you know, sun, surf, and sand. But yeah, it was pretty pretty normal childhood. I suppose it was slightly informed by the by the timing in that uh, I grew up with tales of Edmund Hillary climbing Everest. And people like Donald Campbell with the Bluebird. I don't know if it, you're probably too young to know this, but there's a guy who set a world speed record on water okay. in uh, in England and famously died crashing his boat um, doing that. Call the Bluebird. And so, you know, my brother had a had a toy version of the Bluebird. And it, I think Australian kids tend to grow up outdoors with you know because we've got a great climate um, and those sorts of outdoor adventures appealed, I think, to kids growing up. 
Hmm. So, but then Everest happened, uh, like when you were pretty young, you learned that someone's climbed the Everest. Yeah. So, Edmund Hillary being New Zealand, which is our kind of like neighbor, right. uh, I think that's why. And it was around about the time I was born, as I recall. Um, and so, it's just it's something in the national psyche. Everybody knew about Sir Edmund oh. Hillary. And, and so, it had that sort of an impact. And so, mm. so, so, you think kids around that time uh, became pretty ambitious and wanted to, a lot of them wanted to sort of do it? I don't know that everybody wanted to, but I think everybody always saw it as an amazing feat and, uh, you know, sort of something for the antipodes to be proud of that right. sort of came out of that part of the world. Okay. And so, so you, somewhere you wanted to do that at some point? I did, yeah, in the back of my mind. Okay. Um, it was a very long standing. Right. Uh, and then job. Journey wasn't uh, straight to the Everest for sure. Oh, no. Journey went no. all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, your introduction to, I think, outdoors was, like you said, uh, all the children in Australia, most of them have a, an outdoorsy sort of upbringing. Correct. And your interest in water was obvious because of the availability and accessibility to the beaches absolutely um, and so uh, you first fell in love with open water swimming i guess so i think my very earliest memories of swimming was swimming across a river estuary where my father i was two and a half i think and um maybe three wow. and my father and my brother had seen some treasures on the bottom of this this estuary um it was salt water estuary so it's quite clear some coins and stuff like that. So he just pointed me in the direction of the, the other side and said, right, you swim over there, we're going down. And I, looking back, I mean, it was outrageous. I was, <laughs> I was only really quite tiny. But, um, yeah, that's the sort of But really, two and a half, three, you were yeah, swimming yeah. In, the, in a river? Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's a red estuary, so clear salt water in a river. Yeah. You can see the, the surf and stuff. But, yeah, I, I think I was – I learned when I was two – Mm. to swim. And Australian kids grow up sitting in buckets of water, splashing around. You know, yeah. water is not a, a thing that we're scared of. Wow. Like I said before we started rolling, my daughter is two and a half and I I would love her to, you know, learn swimming. So we'll, we'll connect after this and... Uh, yeah, now's the time to get them, definitely, yeah. if not younger. Wonderful. So then what was your first sort of event thing that you did with the open water swimming? You did... Sure. What was the first swimming event? So swimming, I was always... I mean, I swam. I didn't swim competitively. I just always swam because mm -hmm. I love the ocean and I love um, water. And then I went through my 20s as a workaholic and, you know, kind of put all thoughts of, of anything physical aside apart from, you know, aerobics because we all used to watch the Jane Fonda videos and work out and mm -hmm. what have you. So when I turned 30, I stopped smoking. So mea culpa, I used to smoke, wow. you know, a lot, two packets of cigarettes. Wow. And, and I was... Um, yeah, so I was just one of those type A personalities that was always into going to you know, a bit work every hour that God gave. So when I gave up smoking, I realized I'd better do something, otherwise I was going to get fat. So mm. I, um, at the time, a chap who worked for me had done the first Ironman in Australia. So we're talking 1989, I think he'd done an Ironman in Australia. And I thought, oh, that's a good thing to, you know, kind of to train for and, and keep the weight off. So... Mm. I did a mini a mini triathlon, mm -hmm. um, and then uh, about twelve months later, did the, the Ironman, the full Ironman. So we're talking nineteen ninety one. That was what twenty two years ago, uh, thirty two wow. years ago. What am I saying? Long time ago. Wow. So that was my first, you know, kind of time. I, and I wasn't sure I could swim three point mm. eight kilometers. I could swim at breaststroke, but mm. I didn't know. So I remember. 
the first time I swam 3.8 kilometres, which is the length of the swim, thinking, whoa, okay, I've got that nailed, tick that box, I'll be okay with the, the rest of it. Mm. So even as a swimmer, I wasn't confident that I could do that. Yeah, But Ironman is a very different game. Like swimming uh, was, was your sport, but there are two other sports, right? Mm -hmm. When did you get into those? And um, did these distances not scare you like 180 kilometres of bike, 42? Had you run a marathon? Were you a no, runner? goodness no. No, mm. nothing like it. In fact, I ran my first straight marathon uh, a year after, not even a year after the Ironman, okay. um, about six months afterwards, which was really way too quick. But um, so I, I don't know, you know, in Australia, there are just groups of people who do everything. So squads of people who cycle and people who swim and people who run and stuff. And so I, I guess... In the groups of people I was hanging out with, it wasn't anything unusual. So there were people who would be that I would run with at lunchtime who were training for the Comrades Marathon, which you, mm. you, I'm sure you're aware yeah. is you know, kind of like 90Ks or 95Ks, whatever it is. Mm. Um, so they, they wouldn't think it was particularly odd that you might be training for, a, for an Ironman. And then cycling, I remember my first pink bicycle, which was fabulous, but I knew nothing about bikes. And my boyfriend at the time said to me, okay, so I'm not taking you out cycling until you can change your tyre which was the best training anyone can give you because I see people here, you know, they get a puncture and straight to the auto rickshaw yeah. <laughs> home or t take it to the bike shop. And yeah. so that was way back, you know, kind of. And I, and I had this pink bike and I trained on the pink bike and I loved it to death. And, and in Australia, I mean, it's cycling paradise. You've got beautiful, you know, kind of roads. And yeah. the biggest problem is the drivers because they're all mad and they drive too quickly and mm -hmm. they've got no because they're used to big open spaces they mm. they're not very cyclist aware mm. but other than that it's just perfect the climate the, yeah it's still better than here because we've got mad drivers uh, and combined with bad roads for, for cycling yeah but the, mm. the drivers aren't quite as mad i mean yeah mm. they are in the middle of Delhi, but at least they're not mm. going fast mm. generally um, they come too close to you, but they're not going fast. Yeah. So that's where I did most of my, you know, kind of ride training out in the northern beaches in Sydney, lovely rolling hills. Yeah, very spoiled. Mm. And this was uh, in 1991 we're talking about. Yeah, that was when I did the. Yeah, yeah, I mean, so yeah. I was wow. 31, I think, at the time. Mm. Okay. So you said so you were you were really blessed to be a part of this circle. Uh, of of athletes around you uh, uh, was, was that the case? Yeah, but just because um, there was no so um, Facebooks uh, and uh, Stravas at, at the time. Um, no, no how did you connect with people. Uh, but you know, it's an excellent question. There weren't even mobile phones, as I recall. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, it was just word of mouth. You know, you decided your last run where the next one was going to be. There was a, a group of people called the Sydney Striders. Um, I remember, and I used to do a lot of my long runs with them. Mm -hmm. um, but I've always loved running on my own. In fact, I've always loved doing things on my own. And I think the whole Air Force upbringing may have been part of that. I'm mm. very comfortable with my own company. I like doing m most of my stuff on my own, actually, if I'm honest. Mm. Um, I don't like the pressure of other people around me, except for cycling. I enjoy, you know, kind of group cycling. Mm -hmm. But swimming, obviously, quite solitary, running, yeah. But the groups, I don't, good question, actually. I've got no idea how we used to organize mm. ourselves, but, but mm. it was very regular. You know, on a Wednesday morning, it would be this run. On a Saturday morning, it'd be a run between whatever distance or the cycle would be going out to, you know, kind of a, might yeah. be a 100K ride, might be a 150K ride. Mm. So, like, taking a little detour here, but what about uh, your, your friendships and relationships when you're moving around so much being uh, an army kid or an Air Force, Air Force kid? kid. Yeah. Yeah. You learn to rely on yourself. A lot mm. more, I think. I mean, you make friends, but you know mm. that those friendships are going to have to break 
in a couple of years. So in mm. the back of your mind, I guess, you sort of think, you know, I'm okay on my own. And mm. also you're around adults a lot. On Air Force bases, you tend to be mixing with both the, chi- the kids and their parents. Mm. Um, there's a, a lot more camaraderie. Mm. So I think that's probably informed also where I headed along the triathlon route because mm. it's a very individual sport and it's um, and you do each of those things yourself even though you can choose to be doing some of it with groups of people. Mm. They say that you uh, most of your friendships are actually formed by the age of 25 and you don't make too many friends after, you, you only make acquaintances after 25 but I guess that's not true for uh, uh, the kids of the people in forces. Right? Yeah, I, do you know they have done surveys apparently about the different kind of psychological traits of, of services kids. For me, definitely, it's most of my friendships, long-standing friendships, are after the age of twenty-five, mm. because it, it's almost impossible for me to track down. I mean, I've never been to a school reunion. Probably wouldn't choose to. Wouldn't mm. recognise anybody. Mm. Um, but you know, I have some very good friends that I've had from the age of about thirty, I guess, thirty mm. onwards. Mm. Okay. Mm. Okay. I just want to go back to your open water swimming. I, I think you've done a couple of events before uh, the Ironman training started. A couple of open water. Was, was that a relay that I read about? Yeah. Actually, that was after the Ironman. Yeah, it was after. It was the Ironman. Okay. Mm-hmm. okay. But uh, I did the Maui Channel swim and mm. the Waikiki rough water swim. Maui Channel swims across one of the deepest channels in the world. So it goes from Lanai to Maui in Hawaii and it's in a uh, relay of five people and you swim for uh, I think it's half an hour, an hour each and then and then it's then it's half an hour so you, you kind of go uh, you change over midstream. So right. a bit like swimming the, the, the English Channel but it's it's shorter. Mm. It's shorter but it's it's weirder because it's being one of the deepest channels in the world. When you open your eyes underwater, normally you would see refraction of light coming through for at least a meter or something. Mm-hmm. But here it's like inky black, just black, black, because it's so deep and quite wow. spooky So and full of sharks, oh. So which the English channel isn't. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but it was also you know, just kind of amusing. I was doing it with a bunch of guys who were all stockbrokers, and they had this you know, kind of weird banging on the side of the boat, giving each other signals, and they were just like, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> I had no idea what they were talking about. Mm. But uh, it was quite the experience. But that same trip, so a lot of Australians go and do these sorts of things. So it was, it, I guess I was over there with maybe 30 Australians and the rest of the world would come and compete in this event as well. Um, when we all got to know each other, I suppose, the Australians. But also we did the Maui, the Waikiki rough water swim in Hawaii, in Oahu. Mm-hmm. And that is what the original Ironman is based on. So it's a 3.8-kilometer swim that goes out from Diamond Beach in Waikiki and then kind of goes out, turns right, comes back in again. Okay. So the original Ironman was based on um, three guys getting together and trying to prove who was, who was the fittest, the Navy guy, the Army guy, or the Marine. I can't remember now what they were. Mm. And so they put together the... Round the island, so the, the Waikiki rough water swim, which existed, the round the island bike race, which is 180 kilometers, and the, the Waikiki, the Honolulu Marathon, mm-hmm. 42.2 kilometers. Mm-hmm. So in the beginning, it wasn't contiguous. They, they sort of, or it could be, but they stopped to have, you know, kind of, one guy actually stopped to have a sleep and they, he sort of finished it off <laughs> the next day. Mm. But, uh, but that was quite exciting because it was being, going back to history, you know, so mm. swimming the Waikiki rough water swim. Right. And that wasn't a relay, that's a... That's it, not a relay, that's a, okay. straight, a straightforward swim. And, and any sharks in that water? Mm. 
Uh, no, not that, not that I'm aware of. No. But well, they must be somewhere around because yeah. it's not that far from from Maui and Lanai. Others. Mm. Okay, so coming back to your Ironman training then. So you did the Ironman in 1991 yeah. and you finished in a pretty good time, 12.31 or 12.38? Looking back, actually, it wasn't a bad time. Yeah. I, I, at the time, I was thinking, oh, that's such a, I'm such a loser. <laughs> and uh, because literally you are surrounded by some really good athletes in Australia. Mm. But yeah, looking back at the age of 30, that was, you know, kind of having done one other triathlon only prior mm. to that, it wasn't yeah. so bad. I kill for that time now, actually. But, uh, <laughs> Yeah, it was pretty good. What was your family like around that time? So when you were when you said that you're going to do, has your family like how have they reacted? I know how they reacted when when you announced Everest, and we'll talk about that. Yeah, yeah. But uh, when you said you're going to do a triathlon Ironman, yeah. uh, what did they say? I think there was a bit of head shaking going on, but they were more amused by the fact that every time I go to, I was living in Sydney, mm-hmm. and I go to visit them on the Gold Coast where they'd retired to, and I take my bike in a bike bag, and if, like most triathletes, I was obsessive, so I'd go out for ride every morning in the Gold Coast in Australia and, and they'd be going carrying this huge bag you know kind of with a bike in it and what she up to yeah. so I was a bit, there was a bit of amusement but um, no they, they were pretty cool they didn't really yeah. say much one way or the other okay. yeah. yeah and and what was your uh, uh, life overall like around that time were you employed were you full-time oh, working yeah. somewhere I certainly was making time what was that like yeah no I was Still relatively workaholic. Um, I had my background was in tourism and destination marketing. So I'd worked for the Federal Minister for Sport and Tourism in Canberra. I'd run the Brisbane Visitors and Convention Bureau, um, marketing Brisbane for several years. And then I was marketing director of Tourism New South Wales. And then I went to, I think this is the right order, I went to work in Canberra for the minister, that's right. And then I was running the Tourism Task Force, which was like a lobby group for the tourism industry that that same minister had retired from Parliament and set up. Anyway, so to this day, I don't know how I managed to fit everything in because it was a full, full-time job. And I was training a lot, like, as mm. I said, 180k rides sometimes, well, 120 at least mm. rides every Sunday or every Saturday, really long runs. Um and in between trying not to get injured, so mm. trying to get you know have massages at least once a week, um, doing yoga once a week. So it was, you know, I would I would as an employer I would never employ someone doing an Ironman. <laughs> Just <laughs> looking back on it, it's like, mm, yeah, maybe I wasn't giving it my very best mm. shot at the time. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Let's not give too many ideas to employers. No, okay, sorry yeah. employers. Yeah. <laughs> I mean sorry, Trasweets when they're employers. Yeah, because there are a lot of, uh, in fact, a lot of C- CXOs uh, do Ironmans and stuff like that. It's a, it's a type A personality, obsessive, mm. you know, kind of if you want to, the big next tick, you know, jump on that bandwagon. Mm. It wasn't quite like that when mm. I started, mm. but uh, it, it got to be yeah. more so. And I think that's why I moved on from triathlon, because I just felt like there's got to be more in life than your next run split and, mm. you know, your fastest bike split. And, mm. and although, I mean... To be fair, I love all the technicality of it. I love all the machines. I love bikes. I love I love the mechanics of bicycles. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I find all that really interesting. And still read triathlon magazines because they're, they're yeah. I like to keep on top of trends. Amazing. But yes, but a lot of people who are overachievers in their business life and what have you will take up triathlon. And I think that's the other thing that, that I found quite interesting. As someone who wasn't particularly sporty growing up, mm-hmm. I, you know, most, most kids are very good at sport and then they will um, take those lessons into their business life 
And that's the way I think a lot of chief executives and stuff have mm. have advised. I did the opposite. Mm. Because I was such a workaholic, I mm. took all of the work lessons and applied them to triathlon, triathlon and the things that I was doing. So I think a slightly different perspective there. Mm. That's interesting. Mm. Yeah. What was this uh, feeling like? Um, so did you have too many uh, Ironmans around at the time when, when you did this? In Australia, there was only one, the Foster yeah. Ironman in New South Wales. Okay. Now I think there are, I don't know, half a dozen, if not more. Okay. But did you have too many triathletes around you around that time? Or yeah. were, you, were you like in your circle, you were one of the first and one of the only no, or not? No, there were lots of triathletes. Mm. So we're talking 30, 32 years ago. Wow. Kind of interesting, isn't it? That's, yeah, mm. amazing. Because I think uh, in India, we didn't have uh, too many. Uh, in fact, uh, we probably had a first Ironman post-2010, if I'm not wrong. Or, yeah, definitely post-2000 right, for sure. Yeah, I remember doing a duathlon around Nehru Park in 2009, I think it was. Nine. Um, and I remember hearing that somebody was planning something at Talkatora. Um, hmm. I've never seen the point in doing a triathlon where you do the swim in a pool, but anyway, it's another story. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. You, you swimming in the Yamuna is, is not an option, so yeah. I hear you. Yeah, yeah we have to go to Goa for that. Wonderful. So uh, when you did the Ironman, mm-hmm. what, was, what was the feeling like? Do you feel that you sort of like it's a big accomplishment and what was it like? It was huge. And I think of... Of all the things that I've done over the years, that's probably the one where I've felt most invincible mm. at the end of it because you yeah. walk around in so far as you can walk because the next day you're feeling like yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah a bit stiff and sore. But um, for someone who'd never at that point done anything where I put myself on the line, my body on, my line, on the line, I didn't know. I knew I was going to finish it. Mm. I mean, I, I have a... I know when I'm going to finish something. Mm. Um, we can talk about that later. But yeah. it's, a, it's almost like I'm drawn towards I've seen myself finishing. I've seen myself doing it. Mm. So I knew I would finish. I just didn't know what sort of state I would be in, how long it was going to take me. I didn't want to embarrass myself. You know, all those things. Mm. It's a complete unknown. When you've mm. conquered all of that and you've, you've sort of stopped and go, whoa, that's great. Physically, I felt I could do most things, not, not even just running or cycling or swimming, but Things I never would have done before. And I remember going um, uh, trap shooting, like off the back of a boat in Sydney Harbour. It was a corporate day or what have you. And and I've never had any hand-eye coordination sports. I didn't learn tennis. I didn't learn, you know, those mm. golf or anything like that. And I, and that requires quite a bit. And I was so confident that I'd be able to do it just because I'd become a physical person, if you know wow. what I mean, instead of a cerebral person, instead of using my brain to do stuff, I could mm. physically do stuff. And I did quite well in the shooting, which was you know, kind of remarkable to me. So that, it just stuck in my mind that, okay, I can, I can yeah. now do stuff. That's great. So the confidence of an Ironman carried Absolutely. into... Like, that's everything. Like, everything. Yeah. Like, yeah. That's incredible. I mean, now uh, you look at Ironman and it's such a brand and a lot of people are drawn to it because of the videos that they put out and the you know, the market, sort of marketing that they do. Ironman overseas probably has a bad rep now for, for various reasons. Uh, but we now get inspired looking at those videos and we want to do uh, an Ironman. You back then, because uh, they, they were, there wasn't a YouTube then and you, you weren't watching those videos. You were just seeing triathletes around and getting inspired uh, real time. Actually, if I was to be honest, there were videos around because mm. I, the, the thing that inspired me was watching Julie Moss crawling over the line, which is still the thing that I think a lot of people see and they go, mm. well, so I don't know if your, your viewers, um, listeners would, would remember that. But very early days of triathlon and Julie Moss was this redheaded um, athlete. I think she came from a running background. 
and she um, she was winning by a huge margin, and she collapsed about 100 meters from the from the finish line in uh, Oahu in Kona, mm. uh, and she got up and fell down again. Mm. And of course, you're not allowed to get any outside assistance because then you're disqualified. Right. And she knew that, I mean, somewhere in her subconscious, and she was mm. pushing people away. But, but the cameras are training on her, and it's at night by this stage, and she's literally crawling towards the finish line. Mm. And then she stands up, and then she falls down again. And all the volunteers are standing around being careful not to touch her. Mm. But then um, the girl who was coming second by a long margin behind her runs past her, doesn't realize what the Tamasha is around her, yeah. you know, kind of she just sees lots of people near the finish line, goes past her and wins. Yeah. And then the second place getter also goes past, if I'm not mistaken. And mm. I think she came in third. But but one of the contestants then helped her up mm. and over the line. And um, she just literally crawled over the line and got her hand over the line. Right. And for all of us, it was like, oh, my God, if anyone yeah. can, you know, have that sort of determination. It was mm. incredibly inspirational. I mean, crazy. Mm. Not You don't ever want to end up at... You know, yeah. crossing a line like that at a triathlon, but but very inspirational. Mm. It's amazing. Yeah, we we've seen similar videos, and I'm, and I may have seen this one as well. I just probably don't remember the put name. It, yeah. yeah, because we've seen quite a few of these in marathons as well. Yeah, exactly. People well. who yeah. push them. and I, and I think there is some quite a, there is quite a lot of evidence about type A personalities, eating disorders, marathon runners, ultra runners triathletes, you know, there's this whole interesting thing that goes around that, you know, hopefully will sort itself out in, in time. But no, but tell me, what, what, what sort of research are you talking about when you say type A personalities do what? Well, people who are over, who are overachievers, who are pushing themselves okay. very far. And certainly I know there is in uh, a, quite a lot of, it, of data about uh, marathon runners, like mm. at the Olympic level. Uh, and and you know from from a female perspective because so many of them have amenorrhea because their their period ceases because they're underweight mm. and there's this pressure to stay underweight because mm. of the performance you know kind of metrics and yeah. VO2 max all that sort of stuff. So you did the Ironman and then is that where your triathlon uh, love sort of uh, took a back seat? No, no, I I did that and then I thought well okay I know I can go a long way now let's see if I can go faster. Mm. So that's when I started training for Olympic distance and okay. that's when I ended up at two world championships one in Cancun wow. and one in um New Zealand in Wellington, Wellington. for um uh, for a, as an age group and not as an elite but um still it was I was able to set new goals mm. you know that that I wanted to to get faster and did so that was that was quite good that's amazing but but then you didn't carry that forward onto the longer distance triathlons the Ironmans well I started at Ironman mm. went to shorter distance of the the Olympic distance mm. then when I, I moved to England mm. uh, for work and I then started by that stage triathlon was you know I'd been doing it for 10 years and I was a bit as I said a bit bored with splits and you know kind of the triathletes being a bit narrow mm -hmm. so and I was much more interested in the outdoors and you know starting again with things like mountain biking and off-road triathlons so I'd started doing that in Australia mm -hmm. uh, there's a thing called the the JLW challenge um, and that was a is that the one you did with three heavy? Uh, oh no, that's ropes. the eco challenge. That's a whole other ball game. But yeah, <laughs> that one. I think we should talk about that. But this was just a. It wasn't just. But it was a. You could either do it as an individual or as a team of three. But it was um, uh, started with a trail run in the Blue Mountains of about twenty five k's, and then it was a oh. kayak um, 
no, a mountain bike, sorry, of about 70, uh, no, 50 k's. And then it was a kayak, which was about uh, 20 k's. And then the next day you started again and it was a, um, a road bike and then a finishing, finishing with a trail, you know, kind of a trail run into Sydney. Wow. So anyway, I, I'd, um, that's the sort of thing that I used to enjoy, I got into. So I really started loving mountain biking and, and kayaking. And, and then I, I won that. Uh, my age group for that, um, probably because wow. I was the only one in it again, if I recall. But the uh, there were three guys who were putting together a team for the Eco Challenge. So the Eco Challenge is this event that's been going for many years, uh, or had been going for many years. It was set up by the guy who who created the Survivor, the TV program. Oh, oh, his yeah. name okay. escapes me now. But anyway, so he he'd failed in that. Um, this particular event because it's very tough mm. and so he created his own called the Eco Challenge and there, it's always different because it goes to different countries each year and so it, the year that I did it was in Borneo in 2000 so we're talking jungles, we're talking you know oceans mm. and it was a mix of uh, open water parals which are like outrigger canoes, the very narrow, very tippy um, it was um, orient, uh, coast steering, so you had to swim with all your, your kit and what have you on the, the coastline. You had to climb over mountains. You had to abseil. You know, there was a 600-meter abseil. There was climbing, um, jumaring up a, a rope through a bat cave. There was, so this went on for 10 days, mm. so uh, that was the maximum time you had the cutoff. Wow. So it, and you had to carry all your own equipment. So there are only three three uh what do you call them uh kit changeovers changeovers so okay. you had to take for example your swim fins and your um all the rest of your your helmet for your for climbing or have you on your pack while you're mountain biking so you know going downhill on a mountain bike when you're not used to it with a heavy pack on your back is mm. kind of interesting and then you in the water you had to have a plastic bag around your bag your pack because you were swimming through the water with the pack for a kilometer and a half and then you had to get out on that that crazy stuff but the <laughs> but the the worst part of it were these three guys as i started to say who saw my name mm. as someone who'd done this sort of i was 40 and i'd finished this off-road triathlon mm. and they were looking for a fourth member of the team because you, if you were three men, you had to have a woman. If you were three men, women, you needed a man on the team. You had oh. to have somebody of the opposite sex. Hmm. So they reached out to me, and and I jumped at the opportunity because it sounded like a proper adventure. Yeah. Um, but the problem was, I just uh, accepted a, a job as a, at, to work on the Commonwealth Games in Manchester in England, mm -hmm. and that was at the beginning of two thousand. And this race was in April, I think, in two thousand. So I was going to have to juggle all of this. Anyway, I did, um, and the whole the training for that in a place like Manchester was kind of interesting. But how I found the Lake District, which I fell in love with afterwards, yeah, because it's quite near to Manchester. So I go off and I do this race, but but the hardest part of the race, and it was tough. It was by far the toughest thing I've ever done, including mm -hmm. Everest, like, wow. by a factor Oof. of some. But ten days, you're saying? That's ten yeah, days. Yeah, of, yeah. And you choose when you sleep or I don't mean, sleep. The only thing I can compare this to, or, or in amongst the thing that things that I've seen and heard. Uh, a small challenges like Devil Circuit that happens here, which are just obstacle races, like miniature versions of those mm. obstacle races, which will probably have 5K and you'll probably do them, you know, an hour or two at best. Yeah, but I can't would. imagine the real thing with the real mountains, with the real uh, river and the mountain biking yeah, the uh, and going on with all that load <laughs> for 10 days. Yeah, it was. Well, actually, we, we finished it in seven 
seven days, seven or eight days. I think ten days was the maximum that you had. Okay, I think it was like seven there was a cutoff. Days. There was a cutoff, yeah. Okay. And there were cutoffs on every at every leg, which yeah. I didn't know about. Uh-huh. In fact, neither did our captain. Okay. So, you know, we'd stop for a bit of a nap on the side of the road after the mountain biking because literally we had to push our mountain bikes up these muddy, you know, kind of paths up a mountain because mm-hmm. we couldn't ride that. And we, we just started riding. We thought we'd have a, a sleep. And then another team went by and said, oh, you're, you're keen, you know, having a nap. And we said, what do you mean? They said, well, the cutoff's only in... And, and our captain said, what cutoff? So suddenly we're back on the bikes and screaming towards this cutoff. But, but these three guys were the biggest challenge because, I mean, yeah, there, there, was, there was toughness. There was, you know, like, because lack of sleep is, is one of the biggest issues um, in these adventure races because mm-hmm. you choose when you're sleeping. You kind of grab naps for a couple of hours at a time over days. And, and these three guys were monosyllabic to start with. I mean, they were, they were not great communicators. But, <laughs> but they started off saying that um, we all had a goal and we just wanted to finish as friends and finish. Mm. which was more than uh, at least half the race did. I mean, half the race dropped out. There were disqualifications. There were people, you know, it was it was a mess because mm. the boats were beginning smashed up and uh, quite interesting. Mm. And these guys somewhere along the way decided they wanted to finish in the top ten. It's like, whoa, no one's told me this. <laughs> and I've been in Manchester, you know, kind of trying mm. to set up a new job and mm. you know, blah, blah, blah. And yeah. where did this come from? Mm. Oh, you know, virtually shut up and get on with it. And, you know, they, they really felt that if I shouldn't malign them, but, but they felt that if I had time to talk to any of the other passing contestants, you know, that I should be trying harder, which was rubbish because I was always either second or third in the group of four, no matter what we were doing, whether it was mountain biking or abseiling or climbing or, mm-hmm. you know, all the rest of it. But anyway, that was the Eco Challenge. Yeah, it was something else. Mm-hmm. And uh, Mark Burnett, that's his name. Mark Burnett, the guy who, who the guy, set it up. The, the, so he's the guy who uh, also created he, the show, the Survivor? He created the Survivor. And mm-hmm. it was all as a result of having not done Raid Gawas. He didn't finish Raid Gawas. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's, it's a pretty tough thing. And Yeah. yeah. You, me- you mentioned uh, Manchester and uh, Lake District. But it's all pretty cold there and it's raining all the time. So how did you manage to get in some training? Yeah, good question. It's not raining all the time. Um, it does rain a lot. That's how you get lakes. Yeah. Yeah. It's Well, Manchester's not very far away. It's only a couple of hours away. So it's also probably quite cold and whatever. But I was able to find um, a lake, Oldswater, mm. and subsequently ended up buying a little cottage near there. So I still have that. Um, and my husband and I are going over there for a white Christmas, hopefully, in a few oh, weeks, yeah. uh, a few days. But, yeah, it's a fabulous climbing. In fact, um, climbing started in the Lake District, which mm. a lot of people don't realize. It was oh, a sport yeah. in uh, yeah, a place called Nape's Needle. was the first recorded, you know, kind of climb. Uh, and then it moved to the Alps, and that's when the French got, oh. got involved with it. So. That's amazing. I didn't know about that mm. part of the history. Mm. I lived in Cardiff, which, uh, which was oh, a while away, I think, Two, two, two and a half hours away yeah. from Manchester. Manchester. Yeah. Lake. I've been to Lake District a couple of times and mm. it was raining really badly on both, <laughs> both occasions. No such uh, thing as bad weather, it's just bad kit. As they will tell you, you've <laughs> got to have the right clothes and the right attitude. Yeah. But, uh, it's hard, it's, it can be tricky, but I was blessed with a lot of very good weather and mm. some beautiful mountain biking routes up there. Um, okay. Just fabulous. Yeah. Amazing. And climbing, of course, and, and, yeah. and the lake for kayaking. Right. Because in Manchester, I would go around Salford Keys, which is a kind of inner city um, catchment area for water in what looked like a plastic bathtub because that was the only thing I could hire there and, you know, kind of go around. But on Lake Oldswater, um, you know, there's lovely kayaks to rent. And, and so I, I fell in love with Oldswater and actually eventually bought a, a kayak and kept it there. Oh, mm. amazing. So you have a house in Manchester, uh, Lake District. Lake District, yeah. 
a cottage. It's probably, yeah, we shouldn't call it house, it's a cottage. Okay, cool. Um, wonderful. And then from um, there, did you see all of this adding up to like taking you somewhere? Like was this all adding up to Everest in any way or at the back of your mind? Or was that a distant, distant dream at some point and then it sort of vanished? Yeah, uh, uh, I didn't see it as leading up to Everest, but it absolutely was. Because looking back, there was a very logical progression. Mm. I had no exposure to mountains. I think I'd been skiing once in Australia in the blue, in the uh, snowy mountains. When I moved to Manchester and I was trying to find places to train for this eco challenge, it took me to the Lake District. That took me to climbing, to and I really learned to climb in the Lake District and Scotland, which is not very far away from there. And that rock climbing then led me to uh, ice climbing. Along the way, I also did some ski touring, so I learned to ski tour in Scotland. So I would be, you know, kind of out amongst mountains with snow at, at heights that I'd never seen before. And I, I, I much prefer that to skiing. I'm not. I don't really like being towed up on a, you know, kind of a, a gondola and then skiing down, ski mm. skiing. I'd much rather cross country, uh, like uh, ski touring, where you're actually on skis with skins on the bottom of them, so you actually go up. Okay. Um, you can actually go up. It's a, it's a, a very complex thing. I won't go into it, but it's basically um, they used to be seal skins, so they they stop you going backwards. Um, oh. You stick on the bottom of your skis. You take them off when you're coming down again, and you strap your skis down and you go down. Okay. So I learned to ski. So, but how do you, how do you go up? Just like climb up with the. Well, you're you're skiing. You're kind of like uh, tacking on a boat, but mm. you're going up. So you're okay. going up this way. Okay. So you, but your skis are such that your your heels are raised on okay. them. They're a special type of ski, special type of bindings, and um, they allow you to. You're still using this kind of like skating motion, if you like, yeah. and then you have to do a turn and then come this way. So I did quite a lot of that in Scotland, in the Alps. Yeah, it's actually very good fun. Mm. And then, uh, so I was ski touring, I was ice climbing, so I would go, so sometimes we would go rock climbing in Kalimnos in Greece, um, mm. and then the other times of the year we'd go ice climbing in Ryukin in Norway, which is where... Um, it's also a very famous place, but it only gets sunshine for about six months six of the months. year. Yeah. And they have beautiful frozen waterfalls. So I did lots of ice climbing on these amazing frozen wow. waterfalls in Ryukin. Usually, especially people in the endurance sports, um, and there are outliers like you, but usually endurance sports uh, enthusiasts don't like to do anything else because the three sports consume all of the time. And um, and they, we also, you know, uh, resistant to other things like for example you know most of the runners if, if somebody would call them to a yoga class and they say what the hell is going on and you know we just like to do our sport and i know the, the right way to train is of course you know strength train yoga and maybe cross train with other sports but uh, what's it about you that you you know you you found uh, all of these different adventures interesting and you jumped into them um, oh, i think you've answered the question adventures you know like, to me to me it just should always be about adventure you know, mm-hmm. yes, yes, you want to push your body harder than you can um, and just see how far it can take you. I'm, I'm all for doing that and, and will continue to do that because I, I'm constantly amazed by the human body. And certainly, it, you know, I'm not young, I'm 66, but I'm, I feel like I'm still able to do everything I want to do at this stage. Touch wood. But, you know, that whole sense of adventure, and it's different for various people. So I have a very good friend Keith Byrne, who is incredibly senior in the North Face. He lived in the Dolomites for many years. He's now living in Boulder and, you know, great guy and 
like, I mean, seriously senior at the North Face. So, so to me, adventure is kind of like putting yourself out of your comfort zone a bit and, and seeing what new things can happen. For him, being out of his comfort zone is putting on a suit and tie and going to a cocktail party, or not even putting on a suit and tie, just going to a cocktail party. Like he would freak out doing that and has. I've seen him, you know, kind of feel very uncomfortable. Mm. Whereas I'll sign into a cocktail party and say, yeah, 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 just because I've had all that business training. Mm. So I think, you know, I like to think that I've still got a sense of adventure and I'd like to think that I'm still going to try and push the envelope and find things that are different, that interest me, that interest me, you know, that are not just about my – I have this beef about about the Instagram generation. I'm sorry, it's probably about your age, but, you know – this whole thing of doing things just so you can take a snap, you know, a pick or whatever, click a click a pick. Um, I've just never gotten into. You know, the only the only reason I do stuff is for me because I want to see, you know, how far I can push it. Whereas I've seen, not just in this country but in England as well, possibly less so in Australia, where where people go from their first five k, and then they go to a ten k, then they go to a half marathon. And then they go to a marathon, and then they go, mm, "What's next? Mm, triathlon. I'm going to tick that box." And then, uh, and that's why triathlon is going to take off um, here. I'm predicting. Yeah. And then the next one is, "Oh, I'm going to climb Everest," mm. because the mentality is, "I'm going to do this to show off." I'm sorry, I shouldn't. Yeah. I shouldn't yeah. be quite that mm. strident about it, but there is this whole yeah. sense of, "I'm doing this so I can take a photograph to show someone that I've done this." Yeah you know, to me is completely anathema. I don't get it. And and what's more dangerous in the case of Everest, because people think it's just a case of being fit, which it so isn't if you're going to climb yeah. Everest properly. Yeah. Um, so, you know. Anyway. Definitely not. Mm. No, you're not going to climb Everest to burn calories for sure. You're not going to get Well, fit. you'd be surprised how many people I've spoken to who mm. only focus on fitness. Mm. You know, how did you get fit? Well, actually, that's not what the point is. The point yeah. is, you know, how comfortable are you on the mountains? How comfortable are you wearing crampons? We do know how to, you know, self-arrest yeah. um, with an ice axe. Yeah. Um, you know, what to do if your fellow man, you know, fellow climber mm. gets high altitude, high altitude cerebral edema, you know, how, how do you react? So a lot of stuff that, that yeah. isn't just... But, uh, but the point about this uh, Instagram um, generation, mm. so uh, you're absolutely right, people do stuff for, for Instagram um, so that they can get likes and stuff. But uh, isn't that a part of the, the way our brains have evolved? We've always craved uh, liking from the community. Like we all want to be admired by people around and that's sort of some sort of an approval. And I know the the outliers who, who do tend to sort of more turn more inwards do not crave this and and probably that's where peace and happiness lies but <laughs> but uh, but yeah it these apps and uh, all this technology is actually just tapping into um, the way our brains have evolved right the, yeah I, I guess and I think going back to your original point about growing up in the Air Force mm. I, th I think that whole sense of doing things on your own and enjoying your own company and um, you know I that's that's me I'm, I'm a sample survey of one but that's kind of why I like doing things and probably why I like training on my own and doing a lot of stuff yeah. on my own. Yeah. Um, it's not that I don't like people and mm. I think I'm generally pretty good around people. It's mm. just I need my own time. I mean, that's mm. why India sometimes drives me a bit crackers because <laughs> I like to get away from people. It's not always easy. <laughs> it's not easy. It's anyway, sure. a whole other story. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. But no, there's something about, uh, about solitude. I think uh, a lot of... Uh, Great thinkers or coaches do talk about solitude quite a bit. They said all the greatness is probably built 
when you when you go inwards and you know i think so and in fact i was i made a note when you know mm. you'd asked me about mm. things and and i mm. did think that that's a that's something that's really important um because most of us and most endurance athletes most people who have that mentality are, are into doing stuff not stopping and letting things wash over them not even celebrating the last win or celebrate properly you know mm. yes taking lots of photographs and showing the world but not taking time to work out what that meant for you what mm. you know what lessons you took from it what you know kind of how it's going to change your life all that sorts of things and mm. having a bit of quiet time is really important for people but this society you know generally yeah. everywhere in the world i think it's just all about yeah moving on to the next thing it's all instant yeah. it's all that and also i think uh, inputs like uh, there's so much stimulus around all the time yeah. there's no there's no time for your own thoughts to to say anything to you because mm. even mm. if you're in a queue you're busy in traffic you're always consuming uh, content of some kind you just uh, you have one minute to wait for something you pull out your phone and then you're scrolling in a minute there's yeah, it's, uh, it's true input all the time and mm. then there's no time to process anything that you've uh, and i wonder if it's more so here in india but because i've been here for 15 years i can't really tell mm. it it doesn't seem quite as much in england and i haven't spent enough time in australia you know, kind of recently to find mm. out but i mean i guess it is it, it is endemic around the world but yeah it is Indians around the world are, you know because we're early adopters of technology and mm. um, you know kind of ownership of smartphones all that sort of stuff yeah. i think it's yeah. Yeah. So since we are on the topic of solitude, what what does your solitary time look like? What do you do? Do you do you write? Do you meditate? What do you do? Well, funnily enough, I used to meditate a lot more before I came to India. Mm. So that's a bit weird because everybody comes to India yeah. to meditate. Yeah, <laughs> go and see the Maharaja or whatever. Yeah, I thought you were going to teach you meditation. Yeah, yeah exactly. You, no, yeah. actually, um, all the things that I had done, the the Iron Man, uh, I did a lot of meditation leading up to the Iron Man, which is how I know that I'd seen myself finishing it. So I, mm. I knew that, uh, and where a lot you, of positive visualization. Where did you learn med- meditation? Sorry, sorry. Well, I actually had a lovely, um, I called him my meditation, my spiritual coach, I called him, but he was a, is a, a chap called Nash Chase. Uh, he's a Maori, um, born in New Zealand. All his family were Christian missionaries, um, or Christians at least, and pastors. And he sort of rejected traditional um, religion or Christianity and then started looking at all other different religions and kind of developed his own spirituality. And um, and I found him through a work colleague or kind of work coach who said, you know, you probably need to calm down a little bit and spend 15 minutes on your own. I went, oh, how do I do that? Yeah. So um, that's how I found my way to Nash. And, you know, he was brilliant in, in helping me learn techniques and uh, but also helping me interpret stuff going on in my life and just holding up a mirror and sort of saying, well, you know, it sounds like, and this was like one hour a week, but it was the most valuable hour, I think. It ever. sounds more like a therapy. Yeah, it probably was like therapy. He didn't call himself a therapist. He mm. was a, you know, kind of, it was very spiritually based though. I mean, he would do things like interpret dreams for you or, mm-hmm. um, you know, talk through, it, you know, it was therapy. I mean, it, because he would have techniques like teaching you, to see your different versions of yourself around a table and mm. what you would be saying to each other. So there'd be the little girl and there'd be the, mm. the queen, the rani, and there'd be the, you know, the, the athlete and there'd be the workaholic and there'd be the, you know, little techniques like that. But mm. he was um, extraordinary. I t- reached out to him during COVID to just kind of say, hope you're all right. And he, he is still, mm. you know, kind of there. So that's when I started um, meditation and a lot of creative visualization, which I still do. 
Okay. So I did before this last um, half Ironman. But sadly, to your point, life catches up with you. It's all about, you know, going, going, going. And um, I have a lovely meditation teacher here in uh, Nizamuddin. And during lockdown, she was doing twice daily Zoom meditations, which you would think is a bit odd, but she yeah. was managed to cre- managed to create the space. Mm. So at one point, I think she had 400 people from around the world who were tuning into this, and it wow. was the best way of getting through lockdown. You know, twice mm. a day, they were free. Mm. She just she just did this as kind of a service. Marla Barua, a brilliant woman, um, mm. and she's been you know, studying meditation and and yarn for. 25, 30 years or something. Yeah. So, um, what's the name again? Mala Barua. Mala Barua. Yeah. Okay. In and, Nizamuddin. In Nizamuddin. But she does Zoom classes as well. Okay. But I know yeah. most people go, oh, meditation. Most people yeah. like us, you know, people yeah. who are ultra athletes and what have you. Yeah. But just being able to calm your mind for 15 minutes yeah. without thinking about anything, it's, it's, it sounds like it's hard. It is kind of difficult. But I think mm. we make it too difficult for ourselves. Right. It's just, just sitting for 15 minutes would be a good start for most of us, I think. Yeah. Rather than running around, yeah, no, uh, no, it does sound counterintuitive when you say get, using technology to do something like look inwards. Yeah, but uh, but I'm all for it because even with you know something like an app, which is a meditation app, a Headspace, yeah, so people would go, uh, "Oh, you're using an app," and purists would say that you know it's. Uh, I I did vipassana meditation, mm-hmm. which is the hardcore yeah. thing. So I did that ten day course, and I Impressive. loved it. It's it's, it's it's amazing. <laughs> like my yeah. friend Keshav. Uh, also did it very recently. Uh, I'd yeah. love to do it. That, now, that would be an adventure should, that I yeah. might take up. It's probably year. going to be one of the most challenging things you've done. I mean, d- yeah. despite I'm speaking no, to no, an I hear you. I hear you. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I did that and I came back and then life happened. And because uh, to get into those stages and I, initial days, I couldn't do too much meditation. And then when I tried getting into it, it does take you hours to get into that state. And then you're an endurance athlete, you're amateur like but you still have to put in the hours mm-hmm. you have to run you have to manage a family and then you also have to probably study a course that you're doing and then you have a full-time job how many things are you going to make time for and i and i couldn't so that's the one thing you probably should make time for yeah and and i'd say that as someone who, who often fails but um, mm. but it is it should be the pillar of everything we do and right. it doesn't have to be hardcore meditation it just needs to be Quiet so, time, even prayer. You know, like people, some people call it meditation, some people call it prayer. Just prayer. sitting with some nice bhajans or something is, you know, for 15 minutes is, yeah. is going to be a start to yeah. slowing your life down. I think. Yeah. No, so that's exactly what I'm uh, what I'm saying. So meditation got out of my life for, mm-hmm. for many years. And then I came across, so I went for therapy to a psychologist who's a good friend of mine now. And she pointed me towards Headspace, this meditation mm, it's app. It's a good, and it's a good app. Initially, I resisted. But then I, when I got started, it has options for three minutes, five minutes, ten minutes. And that got me back into meditation. Mm. So I started with three minutes. On the days I couldn't do anything, I started doing a streak. So three minutes was the minimum. And then uh, now I do, like I've, I've uh, done a streak of probably a thousand days without missing a day. And the oh, average wow, would, probably would be around eight, nine minutes. But then most days it is 10, 15, 20 minutes, mm. and, you know. Wow. So it's got me back. And yeah, so you have to be open about if, if technology can help you there. So like Absolutely. you said, totally. it got you through uh, yeah. lockdown uh, yeah. on those Zoom totally. sessions. But the, yeah. the, when uh, Nash was teaching me back in Australia, I was, I've still got the Walkman that I had. Do you remember Walkman? You yes, probably wouldn't remember I do, Walkman. I do. But I, I had a little grey tape, uh, cassette player, Walkman <laughs> cassette player. And I and I think I've still got his tape and I think I've still got the Walkman. I don't think either of them work anymore, but, um, <laughs> but I, I kept them. Yeah. With his voice, you know, taking me through a guided meditation. So same thing as yeah. Headspace. Yeah, same as, same as Headspace, yeah. yeah. Okay, uh, so, so you do still make time for 15 minutes? I try. Yeah. 
Okay. Again, it's this whole, you know, I blame India, I shouldn't, but, you know, there are staff around that one didn't have. And I spent a lot of time on my own before I came to India, met my now husband. Um, and so I went from, you know, kind of pretty solitary life of 50 years into being married and being in a, an Indian household and, you know, how busy they are. There's people always coming and going. And yeah. so finding that time is tricky. But, but when I do get back to it, it's like, coming home. I, I think of it as coming home. Hmm. So before we wrap up the point about meditation, just mm-hmm. tell me about the visualization that you mentioned. So for every large event that's happened, large adventure I've had in my life, I have seen myself doing it. And I will use that visualization to make it happen. But what happens along the way is that I couldn't stop myself if I wanted to. Like I know my life is on that path to do that thing. And it's it's a weird, weird feeling, but I know that I'm going to be doing it mm. and I know I'm going to finish it. Yeah, it's it's almost like I once I get into a meditative state, I will think of, you know, I, I will in my mind imagine what things are going to be like. But then, then once it, it's locked in, that just my life just inextricably, you know, kind of works towards... How do you, how do you look at it? So so walk me through it. You have an Ironman coming up, or or, or a big mm. event of any kind, and do you like do this just a day before the event, or leading up to no, many no, no, days no. before? Many days. Event. I mean, for the Ironman, for the first Ironman that I did, it was it was probably every day for most of that time. Most of the training time. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Okay. So um, so you do this over and over. So you yeah. you visualize yourself yeah. crossing the finish Absolutely. line. Absolutely. Well, do you also visualize? The stages that you'll be going through, for example, you're fatigued at one point and, or, or not, or is it just... Probably the... don't go through all of that. I mean, I did mm. when I was, was getting quite serious about like the world championships and things. Um, there's some very good, but probably data books now around on uh, mental toughness uh, for endurance sports. Yeah. In fact, that was the name of one of the books. And I loved it. Mm. Uh, and, and I found that intellectually quite interesting, kind of looking at your head and how you can train your head. And, and sports psychology was a huge thing in Australia before it hit the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, the, the sort of wins we're now seeing from India and from Britain I've, and from England in the sporting arena, a lot of that's got to do with psychological uh, sports psychology. And I think a lot of that um, came from Australia, if I could be so, so yeah. bold and, you know, kind of arrogant to say that. But um, so... Yeah, I think I don't think about the individual stages. I tend to think more of the finish. But f- for example, the last triathlon I did, weirdly, I just had this small panic attack a couple of days beforehand in the water, in the open water. Now, you know, for me, uh, I've had them before, um, not bad panic attacks, but enough to make me stop and, you know, hyperventilate and, and, it's only ever happened in cold water when I was in England, and I, I didn't know what had happened to me, but I ended up having a breaststroke out of a you know, kind of triathlon. And it's a, it's a known reflex in cold water where, where you start to hyperventilate and then you, you know, kind of get into this panic mode. And I don't know what got into my head, but I had to actually – this was a few days before the Goa triathlon fairly recently, the 70.3 mm-hmm. – and I had to um, like get on the phone to Marla and to my meditation teacher and go, whoa, you know, <laughs> help me talk, talk me down through this. Mm. So then I would be going through the same sort of visualization of being in the water. And, um, you know, I made sure the morning of the race I, I got in the water before everybody else did to just have a quiet swim mm. to, to make sure I was going to be calm through the swim. Okay. So, yeah. Mm. But, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a very important technique, I think, for me, visualization. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So... Everest. So, as I said before, it was the culmination of, without me knowing, a logical progression of 
rock climbing, then ice climbing, then spending time in the mountains ski touring. Um, then I went to the Alps to do some, uh, some mountaineering itself, the French Alps around Chamonix. And then after that, I got the job in Delhi, but hadn't moved here yet. And it took a long while, maybe 12, 18 months for that contract to be negotiated with my Australian boss. So then I, in December of the year before I came to Delhi, I climbed Amadablam, and that's one of the mountains that people climb as an acclimatite in a lead up to, to Everest. And then three years later, um, I find myself at sea level in Delhi working like a maniac again for, um, that was a whole adventure in itself, working for the Commonwealth Games, that that needs mm-hmm. a whole other Oh yeah, 2010 Commonwealth Games. Correct. I came mm-hmm. here in, at the end of 2007 to work on that. So in mm-hmm. November 2007, I did Amadablam. Um, I stopped within 200 metres, even if it was at of the top. Mm-hmm. And you'd asked me about failures and I suppose Mm -hmm. if one was ever going to have a failure that would have been it but it was actually a conscious choice not to go to the top and I think it was possibly the wrong choice. Um, I was in a group of four people, two of whom were not traveling very well, Um, another chap um, who came to, who ended up being on the Everest trip with me also, he was going very well and I was you know doing doing pretty okay but I knew that if I went to the final pitch for the, the last 200 metres through these ice flutes, that the other two were going to follow me. They were mm. going to come with me. Mm. And I could see that the Sherpa was feeling very uncomfortable about that happening, our guide. And so I said, look, I'm happy to wait here. I'll stay with, I can't even remember their names, and, and uh, Partha Day went uh, went and summited and then came back down. And the reason why I didn't want to push it was because I'd probably read too many Everest stories of people you know, sort of pushing themselves too hard, being stuck on the top of the mountain. In fact, we had plenty of time in the afternoon to get up and down, but I didn't really realize that at the time. My mind was on my next new adventure in Delhi, moving to to India. So Mm. I don't think of it as a failure, a bit of unfinished business maybe, but not a failure. Mm. So that was a logical lead up to Everest. And in my mind, I was thinking, okay, I'm living in Delhi. It's just down the road. I will train for this. And of course, the reality of the Commonwealth Games kicked in. And I virtually did nothing. I was hardly even doing any training, any swimming, any, you know, kind of anything physical. I was so tied up in work. And then towards the end of 2010, just as the Games was was finishing up, um, I was contacted by the the chap who organized the Amadablam, the expedition leader for Amadablam. And he said he was organizing an, an Everest expedition that year, which he'd postponed from the year before, would I like to go? And I sort of jumped out and thought, now is the time. Yeah. So it wasn't the best build-up uh, in terms of training, but over the years I'd had the sort of the, the conditioning, the conditioning, I suppose, and also the, the, the knowledge of, of ropes and, you know, kind of high altitude. But that said, I was very, still very uh, uncertain, very green by the time we got to Everest. I was still, you know, kind of needed to remind myself about cramp on work and um, abseiling and those sorts of things. Mm. So you were pretty rusty by the time you got pretty to that rusty. point. Yeah. And also it wasn't helped by the other part of my, my training, which was, so Rajiv and I got engaged in uh, just around the Commonwealth Games time, mm. got married in a civil ceremony here in Delhi. And then that was in November and then got married in the Lake District in the little cottage I was telling you about, the church down the road from there, um, in December of 2010, in fact, December 22nd. 
And so most of the, the sort of Commonwealth Games time and the lead up to it, I was involved in trying to organise a wedding as well as winding down the Commonwealth Games work that we've been doing. Um, and then trying to think about how on earth I was going to get to to Everest. So anyway, I we at the end of December 20, 2010, I then joined my fellow Everest expeditioners in Scotland for a week's training. So I sort of packed away my wedding dress and picked up my crampons and my, my roughy tufty clothes and went off to Scotland um, to do some you know kind of training mm. in Scottish winter conditions, which was very good training for mm. Everest. I should say, I suffer from altitude sickness, which is a really bizarre thing for someone to say who's yeah. Some, yeah, who's summoned at Everest. But it actually kicks in at 2,500 metres exactly above sea level, which wow. is lower than the average ski slope, uh, lower than, you know, Missouri, I think, is it about, oh, I don't know. 1800 meters or something. Rishikesh, mm. I mean, around Rishikesh, some of those mountains are well, well over um, two and a half thousand yeah. meters. So you can pretty well set your altimeter by me. I'll just kind of like start throwing up. <laughs> so I need, I knew I needed longer to acclimatize. So I did the Annapurna circuit as a trek, just very early in the season on my own with one like guide. The circumference of um, Annapurna. So there's a trek that goes around. It's a 21 day trek right. that, that takes right. in all of the the you know the three Annapurnas and um, Dalagiri and you know, you kind of get to see all of those, but mm. you're you're at a relatively high altitude, but not such so high that I'd get sick. Mm. So I did that, and then um, rather than going flying straight from Kathmandu to Lukla, which is what most people do, and then start trekking from there up to base camp, mm. I walked in from Jiri, which is the old roadhead that was taken by people like Bonington or, or even um, Edmund Hillary and and Tenzing uh, Norgay. Mm. So that's very seldom used now, and it's a beautiful trek. It's like a 10-day trek. So I had three weeks and then 10 days of this lovely trek, arrived at Lukla, met up with everybody else, and then we went off on another three-week acclimatization trek um, to get to know each other, to also work out how we gelled as a team, to get some altitude in our system. So by the time we arrived at base camp, we were already acclimatized. We'd already done a 6,000-meter peak as mm -hmm. part of our acclimatization. And we'd avoided all the tea houses of trekkers and stuff on the way up, which is what our expedition leader wanted us to do. So mm. many germs in that whole, you know, kind of Sol Kumbu area with all the trekkers coming in and out. And wow. so we, we were able to avoid all of that. Mm. So we arrived nicely acclimatized, which meant we had less trips through the ice fall. And that's known to be the most dangerous part of, uh, of the Everest climb. The Kumbu ice fall. The Kumbu ice fall, correct. Yeah. So, I mean, we, we had uh, interviewed. Uh, Colonel Rumil Bartwal, I'm not sure if you've heard of him. Mm, He's an endurance athlete and an investor. So mm. last week uh, I spoke with him right here. And uh, yeah, so we, uh, he told us there are different camps, uh, like regular folks haven't been there. And yeah. we've only yeah. seen the movie Everest. And uh, the only thing I remember from the movie is being shit scared. But that's all <laughs> I remember. Yeah. Funnily <laughs> enough, I was too when I saw the movie. Yeah. Afterwards. So the, you mean the most recent Everest movie? Because I was looking at well, it. The, I, there are two Everest movies. Uh, there's several. There's the yeah. original IMAX movie, which was being shot at the time that the 1996 disaster was happening. Okay. And that's when David Breshears, uh, he and his film crew actually went up to try and rescue Rob Hall. Ooh. when that original disaster happened. But they were filming it for IMAX, for the big screen. Mm. So the current movie actually uses some of that footage, 
which mm. because I was blown away. I thought, okay, they they've either gone to Everest and shot this, mm. or else you know how have they done it? And then I found out they did a lot of green screen filming, and right. then brought in the the original mm. Everest uh, film, right. you know, kind of the, the footage. Okay, uh, there's lots of camps and acclimatization, and yeah. yes, being shit scared. So I it all brought it back to me. It, it all became a bit when I went to that movie, mm. um, dragged along by some friends of mine who are also mountain lovers here in yeah. Delhi. But I was looking at it going, and you know that feeling in the pit of your stomach where you go, I really don't want to be here. Yeah. <laughs> and it all brought it back to me. So you've already done the visualization. You've seen yourself. Yeah, that I had. That I had more or less. And that sort of pretty much like confirms to you, like in your head, it sort of gives you the confidence that you're, if you visualize it, then it's definitely happening. Yeah, exactly. The only slight problem with that was I'd never been to the top of Everest, so I didn't know what it was looked like. And frankly, didn't have the time to do the sort of research I should have done. So I didn't even really understand the topography as we were doing it. Mm. And that's my bad. You know, when we got to the Geneva Spur, when we got to the Hillary Step, you know, all these sorts of things, when we got to the South Summit, I really didn't understand where we were going, what we were doing. Anyway, I can tell you about about the night of the, the summit night, which mm. is kind of interesting. Do you want me to? Yeah, please. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so you go up through um, these various progressions. You go to Camp One, you come back down. You go up to Camp Two, you come back down. You go up to Camp Three, come back down. We were at Camp Three when a bad weather warning came through, and rather than go back down to Camp Two or Base Camp like most of the rest of the teams did. We stayed at Camp 3 and the next day went up to the South Cold to Camp 4 and chose to stay all of that day and all of that night and all of the, the next day. So normally what happens is you would go from the, from the Camp 3 to the South Cold, you would arrive mid-afternoon, you'd hydrate, you'd eat, and then that evening you leave at about 9.30, whatever, to for your final summit push. Most people don't understand you do it at night. They think it's all done during the day. Right. So we chose to go up and stay there knowing that we couldn't summit that night. Mm. So we had two days, if you like, in the death zone. As it turned out, it was three days, but that's a whole other story. And so that we had a whole afternoon, evening uh, with five of us in the one tent, you know, kind of in our underwear because it was so hot inside the tent, even though it was like minus whatever outside. It was How really was it hot. hot? It's so hot in those tents because the sun's beaming down on you. Oh. And in fact, this is the other thing. My husband finds it really amusing. You'd start out at base camp to, to go through the ice fall. Yeah. So you, you, you're wearing, you know, it's minus 20 or so and you're wearing your down suit or, or just, you know, layers. By the time you get to Camp 2, so Camp 2 is in a coombe, which is the Western world, word, as you probably remember from your mm. time in Cardiff, for valley. So yeah. it's this huge bowl, if you like, and the sun beams down on that bowl. And it's got nowhere to go, and it bounces up from – it's coming down on you, it's bouncing up from the snow. It's so hot. So by the time you do – it can get up to 40 degrees. So wow. I could have been in a bikini top walking through Camp 2, from Camp 2 to Camp 3. Um, I wasn't because you don't want to get sunburned and it's yeah. in a very hard race. But it's so hot. So, yes, even in a tent on, on the South Cole, it gets very hot because five of you are generating body heat. There's you know, sun coming in the tent. Wow. Through the, That's mm. something very new, like I've never heard of it. It's kind of a reality. So, anyway, we're sitting there and then that night we all went to uh, did our summit push. The I was talking about the fact that I really didn't understand the geography very well, the topography. Yeah. So I left, decided to leave an hour earlier because I, I was 10 years older than everybody else on the team and I didn't want to hold anyone up. How old were you? I was 50, 56. Oh, 54, I think, 50, at the time. Okay. 54. So I, uh, I set out and there was an a expedition of Japanese climbers ahead of me, I found out afterwards. 
And all I could see was this line of light going virtually straight up. It looked like straight up. And um, they were going really slowly. And what you don't want to do is go slowly on summit night because you can get very bad, cold hands, feet, whatever. So anyway, the Sherpa that I was with, Padawa, wanted me to unclip from the rope and to overtake some of these Japanese and keep going. Yeah. And I'm just looking at him going, you've got to be kidding me. Mm. <laughs> I, my life depends on this rope. Yeah. I've seen how steep it is. Now, looking back, the balcony, uh, leading that rope leading up to the balcony is not as steep as you imagine, but all I could see was, you know, kind of headlights, um, very steep. And, and I'm sufficiently agora to think if I'm going to overtake someone, I don't, you know, I want to be able to keep going, not go, you know, like holding them up, you know, yeah. kind of so, um, good manners like that. Mm. So I said, no, I'm not going to. Anyway, he was not best pleased about that. And so there was a bit of tension and friction going on between dear Padau and me. But, you know, in the end, um, uh, kind of uh, having a bit more of an idea of the topography would have been quite helpful and a bit more time to research and as I said that's that's my bad but it was all a bit of a mm. an interesting adventure you know learning how all these things happen so yeah. and then you did overtake some of them or you just went along with them you know in the end they stopped for a while at the balcony which is this place where the the oxygen is I know it's weird and I said to uh, a good mate Kenton Cool, who's now summited 16 18 20 times or something I said why is it called the balcony and he said you'll see when you get there mm. but it is actually like a balcony mm. it's a, literally you go up like this and there's just a flat spot oh. and then you turn left there's lots of turning left on Everest like okay. you get up the, the through the south face and then uh, sorry the um, the Lotsi face, and mm. you turn left, and then go over the Geneva Furs that spurs. Mm. So there's lots of that turning left. Anyway, there's the balcony, and and so we had stopped update the oxygen canisters, and there was a I probably shouldn't tell you this, but there's a guy sitting in the snow, mm-hmm. and I sort of clocked him, you know, sort of saw him, but didn't really, and I should have done because he had his arm, you know, kind of stretched out, and what I should have noticed was he didn't have a glove on his arm, mm. but he's sort of sitting in the snow and. And I just keep going. And some of the Japanese had had stopped there, so I kind of there's lots of overtaking people on the mountain as long as you're not on the the rope right. you know, directly. So anyway, I found out afterwards that he was a Japanese climber. It was his third attempt, and sadly he was dead. But I didn't know that at the time. And he was one of you know, sort of. But he they brought him down the same time we were descending. They did because a lot of them just don't. They do on the south side, and that's why the difference between the north side and the south side. It's much safer to climb on the south side because you can be brought down even if you're unwell much higher on the mountain than you can on the north side once you get to the the ladders on the north side there's no hope of really getting someone down so um, it costs less to do the north side but Mm. that's only a minor reason for me it was safety on the south side right so anyway keep going the balcony and then we got to the south summit and to your point about you know kind of visualization and knowing you're going to get there the sherpas are are paid to sort of get you to the top and get you down as quickly as possible. That's that's their job because they don't want people loitering. I get that. So he was, as I said, best, not best pleased that I wouldn't overtake the Japanese and, you know, I was kind of in my own world a bit there. And suddenly out of nowhere, I'm at the South Summer and I'd stop for two seconds. He's yelling in my ear because there's a lot of noise around. The yeah. other thing people don't tell you, with the, the oxygen, there's so much noise because you, you can hear yourself breathing. So he's yelling in my ear. Well, you're going to get, the, you know, you can't stop here. You've got to keep going. He goes, oh, okay, okay, just, you know, kind of calm it down. Because I knew I was going to make it. And I was on the final approach, and there was a woman on the rope in front of me, and she stopped dead, you know. And there's only like 30 meters between mm. her and this, Max, her and the summit. 
And I'm just thinking, please, will you keep moving? And her shoulders were going up and down like this. I thought, was she having a laugh or, you know, what's, mm. a, what's happening? It turned out she was the oldest Indian woman to summit ever oh. up to that point, and she was having a bit of a moment, a bit of an emotional moment. Oh. But she was stopped on the rope right in the middle. of. So anyway, I did actually unclip from the rope and mm. overtake her because mm. it was on pretty flat ground. And then uh, getting to the top was I was just, you had asked me previously what that felt like, and I was just grateful. I was just grateful to have gotten there, really wanted to get down, had thought to myself on the way up, you know, you're an idiot, Susan. Um, you've just gotten married to the world's loveliest man. You know, you, you didn't want to get married, but, you know, you found Mr. Wright, and you're at risk of, you know, kind of killing yourself on a big mountain like this. And up until that point, I hadn't been particularly worried about dying. You know, it's one of those things where... You know, whatever. And I suddenly thought, I'm going to be ripped, you know, ripped off of some of the best years of my life if I don't make it down from here. So I just wanted to, you know, kind of get down. And the people, we were a very eclectic bunch. Like <laughs> the same path a day who had been on Amadablam with me, unbeknownst to me, had in his pack, his day pack, a plastic iron and a fold-out ironing board made of cardboard. And he's there ironing on the top of Everest. So he was wanting to win the Extreme Ironing Award. Apparently it's a thing. People do it under the sea. They do it, you know, in the weirdest places, hanging off buildings. Extreme ironing. It's a wow. It's a challenge. It's like, I'm not going to comment. But Path is over there. The expedition leader was in tears um, doing a piece to camera because he'd actually, also unbeknownst to me, brought a canister of, of ashes from a boy who'd been killed in an avalanche in Scotland and he'd taken his ashes on behalf of his parents and he was being emotional, so he was crying. My, my flatmate, Jen, uh, the only other girl on the expedition, she was sobbing and she was pointing to the ground. I've got no idea why she's crying. And, um, and apparently she had just buried a ring that her, her soon-to-be fiancé had given her as a friendship ring and he'd passed away in a, in a bike, motorbiking accident, you know, kind of just six months before this. So there's all this drama going on about and then you've got the Sherpas in you trying to get off, you know, get, don't, don't tread on those, those uh, prayer flags. I'm trying not to, but, you know, there's a space this big on the top of Everett. There's, not, mm. there's prayer flags everywhere and not a lot of space. Mm. So tiptoeing around that and you're saying, right, we've got to get down, got to get down. Okay, okay. So I was so, you know, kind of phased by the whole thing. I don't even have a photograph of me on the summit without my goggles on. I was absolutely terrified of snow blindness. So mm. the only photographs of me are, you know, kind of wisp of blonde hair and, and snow goggles that I can say is me but um but we we came down and we sort of took a group decision that we would stay another night in the so-called death zone which didn't seem to bother us none of us died but the weird thing was you lose so much weight on Everest here we were talking about you know kind of diets and things earlier and um your body just eats itself above six, seven thousand meters. It mm. just like that's why they call it the death zone. And I'm walking down. So we'd stayed that night at, at uh, so that's three nights we'd had at the South Coal. And I'm walking down. I've got a buff. You know, a buff. It's a stretchy piece of material you use to to stop the cold and what have you. And all I could smell was nail polish remover. And I think to myself, what idiot is doing their nails on Everest? Because that's how you mind that you do get a little bit, you know, sort of scatty on Everest. Anyway, it turned out it was actually me that I was smelling that because when your body goes into ketosis, it actually smells Oof. of formaldehyde. That's kind yeah. of that smell of nail polish remover. So my body was literally eating itself up as I was kind of wow. going down. And my husband always jokes that my wife went to Everest and only 90% of her came back. 
<laughs> because I kind of shrunk quite a bit. So it's quite a good diet if you mm. really want to lose weight, but I don't recommend it. I always say this as a joke, like you don't climb Everest to lose weight, but then you clearly you can. <laughs> you can. Yeah, yeah. the extreme, most extreme diet in the world, that one, you go and climb Everest. I don't recommend it. Yeah. But it's, on a summit, it's just so heavy, uh, all the things that you're telling me. It's insane. So, you know, people with uh, so much baggage... Uh, yeah. do these things for their loved ones, for their... Mm, mm. It is quite an emotional thing. I didn't have the epiphany that people talk about mm. um, because I was also trying to keep sensible about how much time I was spending there, getting down again and, you know, um, and seeing all the other, you know, kind of emotion going on around me. I yeah. thought, mm, someone better keep the act together here. Yeah, yeah I, I didn't have, you know, people say, what was it like on the top of Everest? It was incredible to have done that. The views weren't great. Mm. I mean, it wasn't like there was a, a wonderful panorama. But as I said, I was just grateful, grateful that I'd gotten there, grateful that, you know, I had a, a body that would allow me to do that. But mm. more importantly, grateful that, that God had said, mm, we've let you get to the top of the mountain. Hopefully we're going to let you get back down again because, as they say, the mountain's only half climbed. Yeah. When you're at the summit, you've got yeah. to get all the way down. Yeah. But what is it about people doing these like a couple of examples you gave of people who submitted for somebody else to bury that ring or, or mm. you know, stuff like that. Why do you think people do that? Like, your reason wasn't anything like that. But why do you think people do that? People well, I don't think that was the reason they were doing it, to be fair. I think mm. uh, Jen was a climber. She's a very good climber. She she summited Chowoyu a couple of years before. She's a very good, um, uh, she lived in Chamonix, actually. So she, she climbed a lot around Chamonix. Mm. So, no, the, it, it was just an emotional moment for her, and I hadn't understood. Mm. She hadn't ever mentioned the fact that you know that, uh, about this motorcycle accident and how he'd been killed. Um, and the expedition leader, I guess, I mean, he was doing it for commercial reasons, I suppose. But but also, he's he's quite an interesting character, and uh, it would have been just, you know, he was doing it as a favour for the mother of the the boy who'd been right. killed in the avalanche. So it wasn't the driving factor. Okay. Um, why Partha would choose to go and iron on top of Everest is only Partha could answer that question. But yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. kind of truly bizarre. But we all made it down safely, and and remarkably, we all summited on the same day. Mm. Normally, you wouldn't get five climbers who are similar kind of abilities or have been able to um, summit on the same day through luck or circumstance or anything mm. else. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, wonderful. So four days in the death zone and then you come back three. down. So three days. Sorry. Mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. But uh, during all of this, like you mentioned, you had married just before mm -hmm. this biggest um, uh, expedition of your life. And you did at some point fear that you might, you know, lose the best Absolutely. years of your life. So before leaving for Everest, what did you tell Rajiv? Like, were you aware and was this in a conversation or was this like unspoken that... You know, let's be fair, not everybody comes back. That's that's very true. And I was telling someone this just the other day. My way of dealing with that was to refuse to let him pay for me to go to Everest. So I paid for the, the whole thing out of my own money because in the back of my mind, I'm thinking if, I, if something happened to me, I would never want him to think that he'd facilitated <laughs> it. You know what I mean? I was just, it's a silly, silly thought. But um, it was important to me that, that, you know, I kind of made that, mm. that break. So we we had a no. I, I knew I would come back. I knew I, I, I ultimately deep inside That's I knew I'd come back. It's yeah. just that there were way too many times, like when you're crossing the crevasse mm. on 
ladders, yeah. shaky ladders, and there's no one else around you because you know you're you're climbing on your own at that stage. Other people are you know you're at different times leaving and coming on the mountain, and I'm thinking, okay, so if I fall off the ladder here, there's not even other expeditions around me. There's no Sherpa. Uh, fall off. I'm not going to die because I'm clipped onto the rope. But it's not a hard side of the the ladder. It's just the ladder and two ropes that are tethered either side. And the way that you have to tension the rope is to lean forward. Mm. So you're leaning forward over the crevasse, walking along where your crampons, these these metal spikes, right. are having to to negotiate the rungs of a Chinese made ladder, which mm. is not looking particularly you know kind of substantial for where I. Mm. So you know you do that enough times, you think. Oh, you know, I really don't want another another mm. ladder. So yeah, those ladders are really, really scary. On especially yeah, the first time you do it. It's yeah. Wonderful. So, and you came back down safely, and it was yeah great. Yeah. And then, so since uh, ever since since two thousand and ten, ten. What what have you been up to? What what, what have you been doing? Well, Rajiv, my husband, forbade me from climbing any more big mountains, So, um, which was kind of fair because you know we, we had gone radio blackout for three days so the other groups didn't know when we were going up the mountain to try and avoid you know the sort of mm. uh, lines that you see of people all going through the same weather window, going for the same weather window. So when he didn't know what was happening to me for three days, mm. he kind of flipped a bit and he said, no, no more. And I thought, yeah, that's fair, that's fair. Mm. And and my mother, as, as I think we were saying before, like she really couldn't understand. And and it was the first time I've I've heard her actually, you know, kind of her voice was was wavering and and she was nearly in tears. And I said, Mom, it's okay, I've come back, and I've got all my fingers and toes intact. And yeah. and and I knew I'd really gone too far this time. It was just I'd pushed the envelope too far for her liking. So anyway, I'm back to sea level, and I thought, oh, what's what's an adventure I haven't done at sea level? So I signed up for the marathon de sable. Mm. Which is, um, yeah. um, as you are aware, it's a race across the desert for seven days and carrying your own gear and everything except water. They give you the the tents, and that was just an extraordinary experience. I cried at the last checkpoint. Wow. I didn't want to finish. It was just so fabulous, one foot after the other, just and and totally like you drank so much water and had all these salt tablets and you were still drinking lots of water and yet it was lovely dry you know clean air and i've never felt cleaner in my life you know despite the sweating and and everything else in the 50 degree heat but that was a great adventure and i really yeah. loved doing yeah that. talk us through a little bit about mds because i think somebody in gurgaon recently finished it mahashweta ghosh a friend of ours in the running circuit mm-hmm. she's just recently done it and quite a few of the runners because the runners transition to longer distances and those who've done 100 kilometers and longer tend to feel that you know, a marathon a day for seven days is probably not not that big a challenge. But in those conditions, it is. Uh, do you want to talk yeah. us through a little bit about yeah. what's it like? Well, certainly in training terms, you can't train for more than a marathon. Mm. I mean, that's that's just a given in a human body. If you start trying to you know, train 40 kilometers a day, is dumb. But you train, you know, up to as if you're going to be running a marathon. Mm. The biggest challenge is the double day. So there's one day where you do 80 kilometers, 82 oh. kilometers, and that's after you've already done. So not every day is also um, 40 kilometers, by the way. Some mm. days, are, I think one day was 34, one day may have been uh, whatever it was. But the 80 kilometer day or 80 plus, I think it was 82, 83, you get two days to do it. So the quicker you come into the tent, back to where the cab has been struck, or set up, then the quicker you get to get the more rest you get. So I chose to keep going, whereas a lot of people will stop at one of the intermediate checkpoints and sleep, rest, carry on. They also quite often stop in the middle of the day, which 
I, I'm fine with, and, and I guess maybe my climatisation living in, in Delhi, but I know all the Brits stopped in the middle of the day, so I know they lost at least you know, two or three hours waiting for the sun to go down a bit. So your point about, you know, can you train for it, is it hard? It's, as a runner, probably not hard. I don't mind the heat. And in the valleys between the dunes, it got down to about 50 degrees. I mean, it got up to 50 degrees. But you, normally you don't feel that hot because there's always a breeze blowing because you're normally up a bit higher, you're not in the dunes themselves. Mm-hmm. I was a bit surprised how few dunes there were. They actually just have one day in the dunes. Okay. Most of it is hard-packed soil, okay. like sandy soil, mm-hmm. and the rest of it's um, there's one day that's the, the big mountain, the, the jebel, and that's climbing up and it's got ropes and you know coming up and coming down. But otherwise, no, I think I think it's fair to say that it's not the hardest thing I've ever done. It's one of the most enjoyable. Morocco is so beautiful. Great. And this was, uh, what year did you do MDS? 2013. Okay. So 10 years ago now. <laughs> yeah. 30, 10 years already. Yeah. Right? Uh, and you recently did Goa 70.3. Was there anything in between? Oh. Um, I was spending a lot of time setting up my business and running it, um, my swim teaching business and aqua fitness. And then, so I really wasn't thinking too much other than keeping you know, things ticking over. There are about 12 different routes, which are the ancient pilgrimage routes to Santiago de Compostela. And it's theoretically where St. Thomas's, sorry, St. James's head uh, fetched up on a beach in Spain. And so people would come from, uh, so the, the two main pilgrims routes are either to Rome or to Santiago de Compostela. It's the far northwest of Spain. Okay. And so it's an 850-kilometer uh, route, depending on which one you do. Okay. Um, and so I did, my friend and I, I, again, it's something I've wanted to do since I was about 40 or so, 30, 35. Mm-hmm. I'd read about it in a friend's uh, room. She had a book on it, and I was reading I thought, oh, that sounds amazing. And I was going to do it for my 40th birthday, and then life caught up. So I ended up doing it for my 65th birthday, I guess it was. <laughs> Yeah, last year. birthday, last year. Mm-hmm. So I did one last year. I've done two small ones this so year. That's a cycling thing. No, it's, well, that's actually walking. So you carry everything on your back, everything. 850 kilometers. Mm. So it's a month's walk, but you have to carry everything on your back if you're going to do wow. it as a proper pilgrim. So and you wash wow. your clothes every night. You, you know, kind of, you get into a, a routine of just walking one foot. So you're doing, you know, 30, 35 k's a day, depending on... Wow. And how many days? It was uh, 30. 30 days. Yeah. The first one we did, which was two put together. It was the Del Norte and the Primitivo. Okay. And then the one, two this year, two smaller ones were part of what we didn't do on the Del Norte. And then it was uh, another one, which is all the lighthouses on the far north of what they call the Death Coast in Spain. Okay. And that's spectacular and beautiful, but quite tough, like really mm-hmm. tough. Uh, this coming year, I'm doing the another Camino, which is the route of Via de la Plata, which is just cycling. So it's a thousand kilometers from Seville to Gijon. So it's the far south of Spain to the far north. Oh, um, and that's a walk? No, that's a ride. That's a cycle ride. Mm-hmm. There's a thousand k's. Okay. So what is it about doing hard things that keeps you hooked to, to adventure, like the seeking one after another and all different kinds? Interesting. I don't know that I'm hooked in the sense that I'm happy to always pivot if things don't turn out, like life circumstances won't allow me to do something. I'm not so obsessive, I think, these days that I I have to do that thing. And I don't do them because they're hard. I actually do them because they're adventures, and they turn out to be different levels of hardness. 
Um, I have a really lovely running buddy, um, O.P. Pandi, known as Pandi G in the, our small running community. And he and I have spent hours and hours running around Sanjayvan, around the, the park there, um, you know, solving the problems of the world. And just generally, he helped me with the Marathon de Sable training, as did our other friend whom you know, Moet Oberoi. So um, Pandiji pointed out to me one day, he said, you know, you've got an incredible capacity for discomfort. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, you know, for most foreigners, you know, going, you don't mind going to Indian toilets, you don't mind going to, well, I said, well, no, why would I? It doesn't, it doesn't even enter my mind. But I suppose there's a lot of people for whom creature comforts are important for having, you know, a hairdryer or a, you know, don't get me wrong, I love having my hairdryer when I mm. need to, but I'm able to disassociate myself from a lot of things, which is not to say I don't feel pain. I mean, I, I avoid pain and discomfort where I can, but if I have to, I don't see it as a hardship. As I said, I don't think I'm drawn to things just because they're hard, just because it's a tick box of, you know, I have to do this to prove that I'm, you know, harder than the next person. It's just more things that appeal to me because I've got a sense of adventure and because I'll be able to look back on it going, yeah, I was able to do that. That was, you know, and I've pushed myself out of my comfort zone. You know, I've gone to that cocktail party I didn't want to go to if I was, a, you know, a kind of roughly tufty adventure athlete. It's just that seeing what else the human body can do within safe parameters. Hmm. That's amazing. But you've uh, mentioned in this entire conversation, I've not heard too many of failures. And I wanted to know how do you deal with failures, but I don't see you have had too many. But how does somebody not have failures? Who, who gets through without failures? It could be maybe not in adventure sports, maybe in personal life. Have you um, gone through some of the toughest moments and how did you sort of navigate those? I suppose, yes, I can't. Apart from not finishing at Amadablam, which I don't believe was a failure, I, I took a decision and I'm comfortable with that decision. I guess most recently I just came back from a, a cycling tour of Sri Lanka for a, a nine-day cycling tour with friends. And, and part of it was in a very, very rough, uh, like not rough, but tough part of what they call the Knuckles National Park. And there was 10 kilometers of switchback. And I had taken my pedals, uh, SPD pedals and cleats, which for those who don't know, your feet are locked into the pedals. Yeah. And so you have to make a conscious effort to get your foot out. Also, people may not know that if you're on a very steep incline, once you lose momentum, the bike starts to tip over and you're not quite sure which way the bike's going to go. And it's very hard to get your foot out mm. of the pedal. So, you know, after a couple of times of thinking, oh my God, I'm going to come off and I got out of the pedal, had to push the bike, start walking. After a couple of kilometers of this, I thought, I don't want to be doing this for 10 kilometers. I could see the topo on the route description. Mm. So I jumped in the bus and I hated myself for it, like really hated myself. And that's as, that's as close as I get to a failure. And, you know, yeah. you get to the end, it was raining and, you know, kind of everybody's really happy that they got to the top of it. Well, not everyone because not everybody, a few yeah. other people jumped in the bus as well. But, you know, that mindset I suppose of okay I started to do something and I didn't finish it yeah. that I find very distressing and it very seldom happens to me so then the next day I I didn't use my cleats and my cycling shoes I just used normal running shoes and was able to do the 10 kilometers the next up switch back of 10 kilometers you know kind of relatively easily so I was able to get that monkey off my back as it mm. were yeah. but but that's um I don't normally react that way I was really actually quite upset it's like <laughs> why Why wasn't I able to do it? And everyone else was having fun. And yeah, we did it, we did it, we did it. But otherwise, I try, because of this uh, visualization that we talked about, I think mm. I always know that I'm going to finish something. I always know I'm going to, yeah. to get there. So, But I'm surprised you aren't in this place, uh, this mindset, 
too often because everybody was trying to do something out of their comfort zone and i'm pretty sure the iron man and everything was out of your comfort zone at the time and when you're let's say in the middle of a 180 km ride there will be moments when you're really like out of gas or you know uh, you want to sort of give in not once not, not once, once in the iron man wow. i was having a ball I, but I was putting no pressure on myself. Mm. I wasn't looking for a good time. I just wanted to finish. And that's the best advice I always give to people doing their first triathlon. Never aim for a podium finish. Never do what some of my girlfriends did this year, which was to do a half Ironman without having, ever having done a, another triathlon. You've got to kind of pay your dues in some of these things. And I, and I had. I mean, okay, pray, but perhaps not with the Ironman because I'd done, you know, only a, a mini triathlon and then kind of jumped in. But everybody else I would say to just just take it easy just finish your first triathlon and literally I loved it I loved every minute of it it's a bit like marathon sub I had no expectations whatsoever of that and I ended up coming fourth in my age group and you know kind of um, there were a lot of people who didn't finish and I think I, I did quite well I was in the top third of both men and women because I had no pressure I didn't you know I, I like to just see how things unfold I'm not generally and this you know, as I said that period when I was um, really training and focusing on uh, Olympic distance triathlons and trying to get faster and that was a, a very different mindset where I was pressurizing myself but even then I wouldn't see it as a failure if I didn't meet the time that I wanted just like okay that's the time I did but in work funnily enough there have been a couple of times where I have felt like the Commonwealth Games here was a, were particularly hard time for me um, for a bunch of reasons. I didn't feel like a failure, but I do know that if I had done the right thing by my, well, if I had followed my instincts, uh, I probably should have resigned and, and forced my Australian boss to withdraw because I could see where it was heading. And he knew and I knew that I'm the sort of person that just hangs in there. And he was hanging in there waiting and waiting, waiting for things to get better. And they never did. So you know, the, we ended up, that company ended up being owed US $17 million um, in fees, which when, which they never got. And I was, you know, kind of responsible for managing it, but I kept saying, please get your money out now, please get your money out now, but they never did. It was probably not a failure, but it was certainly an incident in my life where I've dwelt on it more than most other things. You know, that's a shame. But otherwise, no, I'm, I'm pretty positive in life, actually. I'm one of those terribly annoying people who sees the glass half full and everything. Yeah, but learning to trust your instincts, that comes naturally to you? Or it's always been the no, case? No, and I think for a lot of women, it doesn't come naturally. I think we have it sort of beaten out of us just societally. I think it's a, a systemic thing. Mm -hmm. But uh, in your sport, how, how did you train yourself to sort of trust in yourself or your instincts more? Here's the thing. Most ultra-endurance athletes don't trust themselves. They push themselves beyond their comfort zone. Every instinct would tell you that God didn't mean you to run a marathon, let alone an ultra-marathon. Yeah. You know, that's, it's not right. right. But you learn to override all of those instincts, I think, don't you? I think yeah. most yeah. people do because that's the only way you get to the end goal. Yeah. I mean, it would be nice to just pull up a chair and you know, have a nice cup of coffee and yeah. go, yeah, I'm really over this now. But you don't. You just keep going. Right. So mm, I'm pretty good now, I think. I would never, like in the, the last uh, half Ironman I did, it was so hot. And, and I was cramping after the bike. I was cramping on the run for a bunch of reasons. But I, even if I wanted to push myself, I probably couldn't have done because every time I started to run, it really cramped. Mm. But I also was never going to push myself in that heat because it was ridiculously hot in Goa. 
So to that extent, I will listen to my instincts. And I, I never do anything without proper training and without proper safety. And you asked me the question, you know, I've said a couple of times in talks that I've given, you know, sink or swim, that's yeah. a lesson I learned. Well, that's rubbish and that's really flippant. And if I could take it back, I would because mm. as a swimming instructor, that is not the way you teach children to swim. You would never, ever, ever throw them in water. That's there's so many people I teach now who as adults are scarred for life because that's the way they've been taught to swim they were thrown in the water I mean you just right. never do that right. and sink or swim is, is not my philosophy okay but I've always had fabulous coaches I've always sought out coaches whenever I try learn something new and I've learned lots of new sports over the years I mean mountain biking the age of 45 was the first time I think I got a mountain bike mm -hmm. kayaking you know whatever it is I always a triathlon way back then I had a triathlon coach I had a cycling coach I had a running coach so you know it's I like to do things properly and planned and structured and sometimes I'll you know kind of throw it all out the window but most of the time it's it's pretty structured amazing I mean there's something we discussed earlier but we didn't talk about particularly delve into your transition to India uh -huh. what was that like and how's it been well the first there's a Shakespearean line that says it was the best of times and the worst of times it was the best of times because I met my husband two weeks after I arrived mm -hmm. so that has been a huge plus in my life probably the biggest plus in my life but it was also Commonwealth Games I was thrown here with no support I was the only one from an Australian sports marketing company who was sent here on my own there had been no real preparation um, one chap had come out come and gone you know from Australia over the course of the negotiation of the contract for 18 months, but he wasn't based here. I had no cultural training. I had no Hindi training. Um, I had no expectations other than I had done the same job for the Manchester Commonwealth Games several years, eight years before that. And so I kind of knew what I was doing there, uh, which was a bit unfortunate because I also then was able to show up the people who were also, let's face it, a bit corrupt. No, very corrupt. So, yeah. you know, the, I was I was right in the line of fire and it was an extraordinary thing to me, you know, because Australians are all bright and shiny and you get in there and you do your job and, uh, you know, if you do your job properly, everything happens. Oh, no. So the way of, the way of doing business in this organization was gobsmacking. Mm. And, you know, I would daily be beside myself. And I wake up in tears and, and I used to say to people, you know, they say, Oh, so, you know, what age were you? I said, oh, you must have been going through menopause. And I said, probably, but I didn't know if I was waking up in tears because I was menopausal or just because I was so distressed and so depressed about working for this bunch of crooks. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it was quite interesting. But despite all of that, you know, there would be occasions I'd look back on those those first couple of years and there would be a camel walking down or a bindo mug and I'd be going, that's great. <laughs> or a couple of elephants and their mahouts going down. You don't see those things anymore, sadly. Yeah. And, and Delhi, India has changed a lot in the 15 years that I've been here. Yeah. But So I found it really difficult having people in my face all the time. Firstly, Australians have a higher need for personal space than anybody else in the world. We need two and a half meter, uh, two and a half feet around us, right? Don't come in the middle of my two and a half feet. Are we too close? Oh, way too close. No, I'm only joking. <laughs> but but you can imagine I'm in a queue and there's somebody pushed up against me. Oh, this yeah. Someone pushing me back this way, and it just mm. freaks me out. Less so now. And then the noise. You know, I'd come from living in the little cottage in the Lake District where I was had stayed after the, the Commonwealth Games over there. But it was quiet, you know, hardly you know that suddenly I'm in Delhi and there's noise and people and traffic and honking horns and 
you know, colour and movement and everything else. Yeah. I found stimulus. that too much stimulus. Too much stimulus. I found that really hard to, to cope with. And then just just living, you know, kind of going straight into a marriage here, and yeah. then a um, an Indian household where there's staff around, which I'm yeah. totally not used to. And we, albeit we don't have much staff, we have one housekeeper, but. Mm. You know, just there's always someone yeah. in the house or a Marley coming through. That I found quite hard. But it's also yeah. the the upside because the thing I find I like most about India is is the people and the relationships I've made here and the and the incredible kind of uh, naivety in some ways, kind of lack of cynicism by a lot of my Indian friends. Not so Moa Dobroy. Um, he's so <laughs> cynical. Sorry, Mo. Um, but, uh, but he's also a honey. But do you know what I mean? The, the, the people are willing. I always say to people that Indians are the most adventurous people I know. Partly because you've got no sense of danger, <laughs> no sense, no governor that says, "Oh, I shouldn't do this because I might kill myself." I mean, people just go and do stuff without well, what makes thinking you think through that. that? Uh, because oh. of the way traffic runs. No, well, yeah. there is that, yeah. and I drive in 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 Delhi, but um, and cycle through mm. Delhi streets. Yeah. There is a, a sense of no. That's more. That's more malicious. I think that's mm. more. You know, I've got to get in there, and I've yeah. got to be. Uh, I don't. I don't like that. No, I'm often reminded of this woman I saw on a jet ski in Goa, and she was on the beach, and she's in a sawa kameez, and she's got a buoyancy vest on, and she's obviously never been anywhere near a wave in her life or the ocean or anything else. And she's on this jet ski, and the, before the, the guide or instructor, whatever he is, could even jump on the back, she's already t- <laughs> taken off on this thing. And I'm looking at her going, what is going through your mind? I mean, could, do you not think you might die in this water? And she's straight over the waves. And, and then also a bunch of Indians I saw on the way to Everest, you know, they were, you know, they were and, pilgr- and uh, pilgrims on the way to Galmuk, you know, a trek I've done to Galmuk here. And there are people who, you know, have no business being on a tough trek like that, but they are going to do it. They're just determined they're going to do it. And the death doesn't seem to enter into the equation at all. But anyway, um, that's what I think. I just think Indians are by nature very open to a lot of stuff, open and accepting of a lot of stuff, as opposed to the West, which has turned very cynical and very dark. And, mm-hmm. and so it's the best of times, the worst of times, the best yeah. of, you know, lots of people and the worst of having yeah. lots of people around you. And what about running in the Delhi's uh, EQI? Yeah, that's always interesting. I, I sort of figure that my lungs are cooked. Um, so the first 10 years probably cooked them, and the last five years were just browning the edges or something. <laughs> and I was very sobered by the last article I read that said that, or oh, the video with a, a surgeon, a lung surgeon at Ames, and he was saying that he's seeing an increase in the number of non-smoking-related lung cancers, the number of females who are presenting who are non-smokers, the number of younger people who are getting it. And I can't remember what the fourth one was, but he, but he was explaining that it takes 25 or so years, 25 to 30 years of exposure before the effects to begin smoke to show. To, before effects begin to show. And he said what is very troubling is that people who have been born in Delhi are now coming to him at age 25 or 30 with lung cancer. Mm. Simply by having that level of exposure. So all of us at a certain age, you think, mm-hmm. oh, you know, I've got all this time to... You know, we're not thinking about the coming generations. Those babies, your your yeah. bub, you know, two years of age. It says mm. this is a real problem. 
you know, this is, and he's an, um, it's not like some airy fairy bloke. He's the lung surgeon at, at Ames. He knows what he's doing. He sees so many people going through because mm. it's a research hospital. Right. So I found that very, very sobering, more than most of the other statistics we read. Yeah. Well, as I said, I think I'm probably a bit uh, a bit beyond that. And my husband is a smoker. Mm. So I should be more careful. I don't go out. Now I don't go out if the AQI is over about three three fifteen or something. <laughs> But, but we all know that that yeah. is going to kill most people. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. yeah it's funny when people say it's 300 now, and I'm like, it's pretty it's, good. It's, that's it's 30 as good times as it higher than, yeah, exactly. It's, it's so much It's not 700 or 800. No, yeah. We just get lulled into this false sense of security. It's all relative. Mm-hmm. But we're just burying our heads in the sand. It right. is just crazy. You know, a lot of people don't like this question. Oh, what's next? Um, do you have uh, stuff that uh, you would really like to do? Things coming up, things planned? Mm-hmm. or things in the distant horizon? I have both. kind of keeps me going. Yeah. I'd like to know I've got a few goals. So I guess the biggest one is the, the World Championships for long course triathlon in Lake Taupo in New Zealand in yeah. December next year. Um, I qualified in Goa yes. this year um, in that very hot triathlon. More good luck than the circumstance given the number of women not in my age group. However, so that's I'm I'm training. We'll start training for that in the new year, and that will inform a lot of of what I do during the year. But I've already locked away a couple of things. One is, well, I'm going on another cycling tour of Sri Lanka in January, mid January. I'm going to do a solo Camino to. It's called Rua Via de la Plata, or the Silver Route in Spain, which is from Seville to Gijon, so the far north to the sorry, far south to the far north of Spain. It's a thousand kilometers, and I want to do that solo in April. Got a, a seven-day swim uh, tour of the Outer Hebrides that I've signed up for and paid for, but now I'm beginning to think that might be a bit cold. Mm. So the Outer Hebrides is in Scotland. Intellectually, I'm trying to get my head around cold water swimming. Mm. The reality is I don't really enjoy cold water swimming. I love the the clarity of the water, but gee whiz. So anyway, I'm just trying to get my head around all of that, mm. um, and a few in travel, just normal travel that we do. So, so that's this next year mapped out okay. in terms of my bucket list. I still have two things on my bucket list that, that I've seen myself doing. So for all the reasons we talked about before, right. it's going to happen. I'm just not sure how or when. One is Kona, the World Championships for the full distance Ironman. Right. And I want it to be Kona, not as you're probably aware now, they swap between, they've broken the men's and the women's competition up. So it used to be both male and female yeah. on the same day in Kona. Um, then they split it to men being on one day, women being on another day. Right. Now they've split it between Nice and Kona, mm. so in France. France, yes. So it's, for me, it's got to be the year the, the women are racing in Kona. Kona. So that cuts it down to, we'll see. And the other one is the English Channel, which is mm. something that you know has always been some, an adventure that I wanted yeah. to do. Someone like the profile of yours, you probably should have done it by now like <laughs> well funnily enough many people think i have yeah um and particularly people who've been to my talks it's like no i never said that i swam the english channel that'd be silly and but i think they confuse the maui channel swim mm. that i've done and yeah. um but yeah it's a big undertaking and i and I, you want to do a solo or a relay solo solo mm. relay looks too hard i remember my friend moat talking about you know how cold it was yeah. when he got back on the boat never really warmed up and then have to get back in and you know kind of and then get wet and uh, sounds too hard i think once i get in the water i just want to get the thing finished and mm. and i'm not so fond of realize i'd rather just do the thing yeah. myself but that will be a two-year 
leader. Project. And their project, mm-hmm. there's a couple of long distance swims that mm-hmm. almost everybody who does a, a channel sw- uh, swim does. Okay. Um, so I'm planning for that. Yeah. So what's coming up is a lot more uh, triathlon and swimming oriented stuff. Yeah. Right? And cycling. And, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's great. So we're also training for a triathlon. And, uh, so I hear. You're gonna be, yeah. You're going to be training in Delhi. So we'll hopefully catch you on some of the runs or the rides. Absolutely. And I hope to be there cheering you on in Goa. So yeah. Will you be there? Oh, you have I'll a make house. sure. Yeah. I'll yeah, make sure, sure we're there. Yeah. Okay. So I can cheer Amazing. you on. Amazing. I won't guarantee I'll come and do the race though. I think once, <laughs> once in that heat's enough, but I'll yeah. definitely be there to cheer you on. Wonderful. Thank you. And just before we go, any advice for people who are sort of trying to get better in 2024? People who are sort of uh, finding themselves stuck in life, how do you think they can get a move on and, you know, achieve some of the goals that, that they've been wanting to achieve? For a long time? I think it goes back to what we said earlier, and that is you really do need to look within. No advancement, I think, ever takes place unless you really start to look at yourself. And I think the best way to do that is through meditation. Um, not necessarily formal meditation, just taking time to be on your own, to allow yourself with your own thoughts or without thoughts, just, you know, kind of clearing your mind. Because, uh, again, my, my lovely meditation teacher, I was complaining about something that was going on around me and why couldn't these people understand and I did I belong in India and, you know, I, I give them this brief and why have they taken that? Why don't they just follow it through and finish it? Typical Western, you know, kind of projection of, of expectation. Mm-hmm. And she just looked at me and she said, well, you either leave India or you change. I said, why should I have to change? And she said, because you have to change. She said, these people are not going to change circumstances are not necessarily going to change. You have to look at yourself and think, okay, what change do I want? You know, what, what, is, what is the right change for me? What, um, you know, how far am I prepared to change? Or else you just change direction. Now, I don't want to leave India. I don't want to leave my husband. So, you know, it was a very good lesson to me in having to stop and just reflect on the things that are important. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, people who are stuck, they shouldn't force change. I don't know about you, but but any time I've ever tried to take a decision, it's mm. been the wrong one. If I've tried to force a decision and I wouldn't, it wasn't coming easily, it's always been the wrong decision. Life will take you where it's supposed to take you if you just listen to what's going on inside you, and I'm a, a great believer in that. Mm-hmm. So look within is what I would say to people who are stuck and wanting to make themselves better. Wise words. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. And what, what does the process look like? So somebody who's, let's say, not used to meditation at all and somebody, and in fact, a lot of people, I mean, I, I am a meditator, so I understand in, uh, intuitively what you're talking about. But a lot of people don't do meditation. They don't even understand the value that might bring. They say, so on the, the surface level value that people can get out of meditation is being less stressed and, you know, uh, being able to perform the, their everyday tasks, also feeling more cheerful probably through the day or a little less stress, whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, they say, I'm I'm actually a happy person and I don't face any of these issues and why should I meditate? What, what's the case for meditation? So what does a process of inquiry look like? If we go back to your previous question, which is if people are stuck or they're not happy mm-hmm. where they are oh, and they're okay. wanting to change, right. then then yeah. they're obviously not happy and so therefore there is right. something that, that they might want to change. Those who are doing fine... Uh, well, don't probably need they're fine. They're they're doing fine. But I think yeah. everybody benefits from from, from self reflection. And yeah. I think in this day and age where we're all programmed, as we discussed, to do 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 do, never stop and either think or not think, mm. just reflect, just yeah. be with yourself. Yeah. I think it's it's behoves all of us to to do that on a regular basis. It doesn't have to be 
formal meditation. I mean, I, I meditate when I swim. I like to think I meditate when I swim because I, I'm not thinking about anything other than the strokes and the, you know, and I count and I, you know, so my mind is being cleared. And I remember my um, Nash, the spiritual coach I had in Australia, he used to liken meditation. Do you remember we were talking about um, the cassette tape? Mm-hmm. And we used to have cleaners for the old Walkmans. You probably don't remember that, but they looked like a cassette. Oh, oh yeah. And it had a, it was reel to reel, and it went into your Walkman yes. and it cleaned the heads mm-hmm. on, your, on your cassette so right. that the, you know, the, the buildup of dust and stuff came off. Yeah. And he used to say meditation is like that, it's a cleaner. Or a video cleaner, you know, the old you used to have a cleaner for videos as well. It was a bit like that. You stuck it in there, and it was like a, built like a video, and then it would just wipe everything clean. And he said, rather than coming at situations the same way you've always come at situations, by using meditation to clear your head, you come at everything new and fresh, and with a you know kind of a, a different perspective and a and a calmness and a you know, and, and the answers come to you rather than you having to kind of go out and find the answers. And I've always thought it was a lovely analogy of this cassette cleaner, you know, yeah. wiping being everything clean so that new stuff can come in. And if you think of how many problems people have, it's because, particularly in relationships and stuff, yeah. it's because you, one is expecting set behavior from the other person. It's like, oh, someone does something, you go, oh, I knew you were going to do that. Yeah. And so the, you react, one reacts with also known behavior and the other person goes, oh, I knew they were going to say that. You know, and it all ends up kind of yeah. like this. Whereas it, this person may not have meant that at all. Yeah. You know, where it, we're perceiving, we're judging people on the basis of, of what our expectations are and being able to, you know, I think the Buddhists have got it right. I'm not a Buddhist, but I think, you know, their whole philosophy is coming into every situation a new, fresh, yeah. It's a bit like Rafa Nadal's tennis. He, apparently every point he goes into, mm. not thinking about what's gone before, just thinking about you know, mm. what the next shot is. So that's a good yeah. philosophy. Amazing. We can all benefit from that. Wonderful. Susan Hunt, thank you so much. Uh, thank you. It's been, it's been an absolute treat. Really lovely meeting you. Thank you. Lovely to meet you.